Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again, my friend, and welcome into the Stream Police Podcast, a very special edition of the Stream Police Podcast, I might add. Not only is it our episode 74 extravaganza, we're coming at you in December of 2019, as I'm sure you don't need me to tell you, because it's probably when you're listening to the show, but for posterity, let me just say, coming at you in December 2019, that means the end of another decade, the end of our first decade here doing the show, but the end of another decade in our lives and in the world of entertainment. So, Andy Sedlak, our music man, and myself, Clint Davis, are going to be running down our favorite things of the past decade in this edition of the show. And I wonder if uh, your own personal list and our personal lists will uh, have any crossover whatsoever. I am Clint Davis, though. I'm glad to be chatting with you. If this is the first time uh, that you've ever listened to the program, thank you very much for uh, joining the fold here, my friend. It's good to have you. We are a uh, a humble but proud show, a humble but proud people here at the Stream Police. We sift through all the garbage that's out there in the wasteland of entertainment because there is plenty of it. And uh, I talk about movies and television, uh, and Andy talks about everything in the world of music. Uh, I'm coming at you from my closet in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. Andy does his portion from Cleveland, Ohio. We have kind of a unique format. Andy and I, we don't uh, we don't talk to each other. During the show, we're not on the phone or anything like that. We're not in the room together, chuckling throughout it as we, uh, you know, uh, impress each other with how witty and knowledgeable we are. Instead, we both kind of do monologues about uh, our topics, and then uh, we send it all out to you to uh, to judge us and uh, hopefully give us a nice five star rating there at iTunes. But only if you mean it. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis as well, at MR Clint Davis. You can see the stuff that I'm watching as I'm watching it on Instagram. I always post it on my story there. All right, let me light up my stogie here. My Zippo is out of uh, out of fluid here, so I'm going to have out of gas. So I'm going to I'm going to do it old school style. I'm going to light up light up a match here. I'm sitting in the closet. I always like to get you know, a little smoky aroma going, a little cigar. Why not? I've earned it, I say. Uh, my little once-a-month trip into the closet here. So let me go ahead and light up. All 
All right, that is good. That's the true, I mean, that's the way to light it. You know what I mean? Uh, this, this, sometimes a Zippo gives you a little added flavor that you're not necessarily necessarily looking for, but uh, the matches, man, you can't really lose with that. Classy also. And who doesn't love that post-match burning smell? So usually uh, this portion in the show every month, I give you a new entry into the canon of the greatest TV show theme songs of all time this week, but I am not going to do that in this episode because there's just too much to get to. I've got to run down for you my 10 favorite TV shows of the 2010s, and I've got to run down for you my 10 favorite movies of the 2010s, and there's just too much to talk about. Later on in the show, though, as usual, I will still give you uh, some things that are streaming on Amazon and on Netflix that I'm recommending that you watch, and also I'll tell you the best thing that I watched this month. Real quick, though, uh, as we uh, move along before I give give you uh, my list of my favorite TV shows of the 2010s. I wanted to run down for you real quick my initial impressions of Disney Plus. It has come out since we last spoke. It uh, has taken over, you know, kind of the narrative of the streaming wars. Everyone's talking about it, even though I don't understand calling it the streaming wars because I mean, there's not. It's not like everyone's just going to pick one. I mean, these services are priced at a way to where you can have them all and still pay less than you ever did to have any cable package. Uh, I mean, you could have Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, and Disney Plus. Uh, every month you could pay for those and you would still be paying less than you're going to pay for like the most basic cable package that, uh, you know, whoever your cable company is offers and definitely less than what you're going to pay for like direct TV or something like that. So I don't really get the streaming wars. Plus they all offer different things. So it's not like it was, it's not like it is with cable companies or satellite companies where you're compete. they're competing with the same programming. Um, and it just comes down to price and maybe it comes down to a couple extra channels that you may or may not get. So I don't get it. It's not a war to me. I mean, these companies can all kind of coexist with each other and hopefully having a bunch of them will help all of us because hopefully it'll mean, um, you know, more great content out there and it'll mean lower prices for all of them since they're all having to compete with one another and their subscription price is really the only thing that's keeping anyone from subscribing or not subscribing. So Disney Plus, uh, I've spent a couple weeks with it now. I got to tell you, I'm not sure that it's really worth it to me. Now, that's just me personally. I'm not saying that it's not a, it, it doesn't have great stuff on it because it definitely does. I mean, it's got a ton of stuff on it. Tons of Disney movies, tons of Marvel movies, not all of them, tons of Star Wars movies, um, tons of old, like, Disney Channel stuff, and it's got the entire run of The Simpsons on it. So it's got a bunch of great stuff. And at, like, $6 a month, I mean, it's really pretty tough to beat, and the interface of it is nice. Uh, they're making changes to it all the time, but it's a nice-looking app, and it's it's easy to use. And it's got a big hook in people with the the Mandalorian. So they launched with a show that a lot of people are talking about. So that's a big win for Disney uh, and Disney plus as well. But you know, I got to say the price is great, but the thing is I'm a movie collector. So I'm one of those old dinosaurs who still like over the past 20 years, basically I've been buying movies. I've been buying DVDs since I'm, you know, a teenager in high school. I've been just buying DVDs like crazy. And I have, you know, boxes full of them in my basement. So I own pretty much all the Disney movies that I'd ever want to rewatch. I've picked them all up over the years. And I was not a kid who grew up on Disney Channel 
original movies, so those don't have any nostalgic value to me. Um, I've got the Marvel movies that I would want to own. I've got um, all the Star Wars movies. So it's just not a thing. Like, I, I've got all the stuff that's on Disney Plus that I would want to watch, the Pixar movies and stuff like that. I've already got them all because I'm a movie collector. But if you're not a movie collector, then this really is great. I, I think it's cool. I think Disney Plus is cool for catching up on some of the obscure Disney movies that I had never seen before. Like, I've never seen The Sword and the Stone. So I'm finally going to be able to watch that. I had never seen the Winnie the Pooh movie from like 2010, 2011. Uh, so I finally got to watch that. I really liked it, by the way. Uh, never got to see the Black Cauldron. So I'll get to see that. But, you know, I've seen all the Marvel movies. I've seen all the Star Wars movies. I've seen every episode of The Simpsons, almost. I haven't seen like the last seven seasons or so. But, you know, I've seen all the Golden Age Simpsons. I've got them all on DVD. I've watched them all multiple times. Um, and same for the Marvel movies and the Star Wars movies. I've seen all of them multiple times. So there's just not a lot on Disney Plus for me, but I do think this service is amazing for people who have kids around that 5 to 10-year-old age range where they want to watch Disney movies kind of nonstop. It's really good for that uh, and the wealth of Disney films on there because Disney movies were always hard to find and they were always expensive to buy. They always have been. Um, so if you're somebody who never bought the movies... You know, if you're not a movie collector, then this is a great service, especially for $6 a month. It's uh, really hard to beat. It's very reasonable, especially if you opt for the $50 for a year deal. I mean, you're paying, you know, $5 a month, less than $5 a month to watch all of this, like, top-tier entertainment, all the stuff that kind of moves the needle. I mean, the Marvel movies are the top-grossing movies pretty much every year. The Simpsons is arguably the greatest television show in history and you can watch the entire run of it uh, if you want to at any point and it's a lot of episodes so I mean that is a tough show to beat as far as just a wealth of content I mean it'll give you just endless hours you're talking 30 plus seasons of 24 episodes a season entertainment and it's some of the funniest stuff that you'll ever see and some of the stuff and stuff that's still memed to this day so I mean the Simpsons stuff is still relevant and still very funny today and you know the Star Wars movies some of the biggest grossing uh, most culturally important movies of the last 30 years plus so there's a lot of good stuff on Disney Plus, but I don't know if it's for me. I don't know if it would if it would do it for me. I'm using uh, my in-laws subscription of it to watch it, so that's kind of how I got the hookup on Disney Plus there. But if it was up to me, I probably probably would not subscribe to it. At least not at this point. Now we'll see once Disney Plus starts to roll out some more of those Marvel original shows that they are supposedly going to be doing, maybe some more original Star Wars stuff, uh, and maybe some other original series that have nothing to do with Marvel and Star Wars. What a concept that would be for Disney Plus to get into. Um, maybe then we'll see, and I'll reevaluate the whole thing. Um, you also have the Disney nature movies, which are you know, pretty good, especially for kids. They're not the best nature. They're not up there with like PBS nature documentaries, but they're pretty good stuff, especially if you want the more kind of heartwarming nature stories and not the, the grim shit that you're going to see uh, if you watch some of the nature docs on Netflix. So that's my thoughts on Disney+. Plus. Uh, have you been using it? I want to know your thoughts on it as well. Is there something that you found on there that you really like? I have not watched The Mandalorian yet. I'll probably be uh, checking that out here pretty soon, and I will give you my thoughts on it here on the show as always coming up in 2020 but uh, reach out to me at theclintdavis at gmail.com t-h-e clint davis at gmail.com if you want to uh, tell me your thoughts on disney plus is it worth that little 5.99 a month price tag
All right, so as I said, we're at the end of another decade, my friend. And uh, this is a time when people... I talked about this a couple episodes ago, about how people have their heads so far up television's ass the last 20 years. People act like TV just became like a good thing to spend your time watching when the reality is that there have always been really good TV shows throughout every era of television that you watch. doesn't matter the decade. There have always been really outstanding uh, artists working in TV. I mean, always. They've always been there. So TV did not just get good in 1999 when The Sopranos came out. It just it didn't go that way. I mean, it, it certainly went to kind of a new level where it became more like movies than it ever had been. TV was always... It, it felt like TV. It didn't feel like cinema. But now, you know, it does have that cinematic thing. And the uh, emergence of binge watching has made it easy for people to watch entire TV shows all the way through, whereas it was very hard to do before. I mean, I came up really in the days when uh, the VHS and DVD box sets really came out. So we were able to watch TV shows, you know, from start to finish that way. That was still a pain in the ass to get all the discs and watch them, take care of them. They were expensive as shit to buy those box sets. But now it's a cinch to watch TV shows from start to finish without having to take breaks between seasons and things like that. So people are kind of spoiled on that, and they think TV is just, it's never been this good. But I disagree with that. I don't think that we're in some era where TV is untouchable and it's it's better than movies, and I've, I've just never kind of gone that way. I think in the 2000s, you could have maybe made a case that TV was better than movies there for a little while, but I think it's come back down now since then, and I don't know if it's ever been better than movies. I'm just a, a, a guy who uh, finds a certain magic in movies that, to me, TV will never be able to replicate because there's always something about TV that makes it a little bit more pedestrian. It always has to be because of the length of it. It's just hard to tell such an arresting story for that long of a time. It's just a necessary evil of TV. There always have to be dips in it, whereas a you know a perfect two-hour film is is just really, really hard to beat as a piece of entertainment. But TV has been fantastic, and over the last decade, I've found some shows that will go down as some of my all-time favorites. So I wanted to run down for you, my faithful friend here at the Stream Police Podcast, my 10 favorite TV shows of the 2010s. Now, I'm not going to call these the 10 best TV shows of the 2010s because my ego is not that big. I'm just going to tell you these are my 10 favorite shows in order. I'm going to rank them for you of the 2010s. Now, real quick, a few shows that I like a lot, but I think need a little more time. And so I did not put them on my list because they've only been on for a couple seasons. And you know how a show goes. If it's, you know, it can be really good for a couple seasons and then it can fall off a cliff pretty quickly. Uh, One of those is Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House. That has only been on for one season, but I think what an incredible season it was. It's one of the most chilling, scariest shows I've ever seen. So well done. Uh, might be my favorite show on Netflix, either it or Mindhunter, which is another show that I think needs more time. Uh, you're only two seasons in the bag on that, so it could go any way. But Mindhunter and The Haunting of Hill House, to me, are the crowning achievements of Netflix uh, from the 2010s, which is you know the Netflix era. So those two shows to me did not make my list because they need a little bit more time. So I didn't put them on here. Also, same goes for Amazon's Fleabag, which has been a really good show uh, for its first two seasons. But I don't think it's quite there yet. I don't think it's been on long enough for me to call it one of the best shows of the 2010s. Uh, Same goes for Starz's American Gods. I need to see a little bit more of that. We're only two seasons into that show. It's very good, but 
you know, they need a little bit more time. And for CBS All Access is Star Trek Discovery, which uh, I've talked about in a previous episode. If you want to hear my review of the first season of that, uh, go back and check it out in the archives. Um, Star Trek Discovery has a chance to be one of the great shows, I think, of its time, but uh, just not been on long enough for me to count it among the best of the 2010s. But without further ado, let's get to it. My 10 favorite shows of the 2010s. So first off, coming in at number 10 is a TV show from the network that really dominated the latter part of the 2000s. The beginning part of the 2000s was dominated by HBO. The latter part of the 2000s was dominated by AMC. And that uh, network has not fallen off in the 2010s. In fact, I've got two shows from that network in my top 10. And the first one coming in at number 10 is Better Call Saul, which started in 2015. show is still on the air uh, right now four seasons are in the bag and 40 episodes and the series is continuing in 2020 with its fifth season but I got to tell you man sh- this show Better Call Saul shows you exactly how a spinoff can be a great show on its own without hindering the uh, legacy of the original show which in this case was Breaking Bad and without relying too much on the original show because Better Call Saul is a is a really good show. Even if Breaking Bad didn't exist, even if you never had seen it, I think you'd find something in the show. It's a totally different series as far as how it's executed, its genre, uh, the style of the show. Very different. Uh, but enough links to where it, it makes real diehard fans of Breaking Bad excited because they'll see little a lot of Easter eggs and things like that and characters popping up here and there. But if you've never seen Breaking Bad, I, I am convinced that you would still find a lot in Better Call Saul to find to make you gripped every single time you watch an episode. In some ways, I'm, I think this show is better than Breaking Bad. And in other ways, it's not as good as Breaking Bad. But there are some ways where it is better. I, I think it's been... A great show since episode one. It hooked me right away uh, when I caught the first episode of Better Call Saul back in 2015 when it aired. Um, And Breaking Bad did not hook me right away. I just didn't... uh, Its pilot episode is one of those classic pilots, and you think about Walter White standing in his underwear out there in the desert in Albuquerque, of course. Classic image from TV history. But that first episode, it took a while for Breaking Bad to really hook me. It took, like, probably an entire season for me to really get hooked on that show to where I could not stop watching it. Whereas with Better Call Saul, it was the first episode that really drew me in and made me want to keep up with this show. Bob Odenkirk, who plays the main character, Jimmy McGill, just gives the performance of a lifetime, to be honest with you. And we get to spend a lot more time with Mike Ehrmantraut from Breaking Bad, who's one of the best characters on that show, uh, who's played by the great Jonathan Banks. We get to spend a lot more time with Mike. And who didn't want to spend more time with Mike? I mean, when he, you know, got the axe in Breaking Bad, that was one of the worst moments in that entire series. And it was just like, why? No, why? And that was the moment when for Walter White, it was finally, it was just like, okay, you know, fuck you, man. Just, get, you need to, you need to be wiped out. To do something like that to Mike Ehrman Trout. So you get to spend a lot more time with him. Who doesn't want to spend more time with Mike? So that's another great thing about, about Better Call Saul. Just the, the performances are, are fantastic. The supporting cast is wonderful on this show. If you haven't watched it, Ray Seahorn, who, if she does not win an Emmy at some point for her work on this series, um, 
it's going to be go down as kind of one of those ultimate robberies, I think, in the history of the Emmys. Michael Mando is so good in his role as well. He's got a major major part in this. Michael McKean is very good. Uh, he stands out a lot as really the kind of villainous, the brother of Jimmy McGill, the guy that kind of pushes him in the direction that this character is ultimately going to go. It's got plenty of little Easter eggs, like I said, from Breaking Bad, but the show is so much more than that, and it reminds me really of what the Star Wars prequels should have been. Honestly, when I think of the of Better Call Saul, I think of the Star Wars prequels, and I'm sad. Because what were the Star Wars prequels all about? It was all, the whole point of it, and anyone who went in to watch Episode 1, 2, and 3, we knew what Episode 3 was going to culminate in. It was going to culminate in this young Anakin Skywalker becoming the ultimate evil in Darth Vader. And we were all like, how's he going to get there? What's going to push him there? And it was there was so much boring bullshit that had nothing, so many detours that had nothing to do with it, and so much wooden acting and bad dialogue, so that by the time it finally got to him becoming Vader, we had all just, we didn't really care that much anymore. We just wanted to get it over with. But Better Call Saul, we know exactly how sleazy this guy is going to become. This honest, hard-working lawyer named Jimmy McGill. We know he's going to become Saul Goodman from Breaking Bad, like one of the ultimate sleazy piece of shit ambulance-chasing lawyers in, his, in the history of television. But we don't know how he's going to get there because this is an honest, hard-working guy. But this show gives us a believable and sympathetic path, an arc to that point that has been so fun to watch. And uh, it's still a mystery, you know, how what exactly is going to push him over the edge and what's going to happen to some of these characters that aren't in Breaking Bad that are in Better Call Saul and are huge parts of Jimmy's life. So there's a lot of things that are still unanswered. And, um, you know, the creator of, of, of Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan, is one of the great TV writers ever. He has been since he was working on the X-Files. His X-Files episodes were always some of the best ones. And obviously what he did with Breaking Bad was remarkable. But I think uh, Better Call Saul has been a great achievement for AMC and for Vince Gilligan and for Bob Odenkirk especially and really all the actors who show up because it's just full of great performances and it feels like such a lived-in real world that this show is set in. So four seasons have aired so far uh, of Better Call Saul. 40 episodes have been in the books. The show is continuing on, but uh, as of now, I've got it as my 10th favorite show of the 2010s. AMC's Better Call Saul from 2015. You made a mistake and... They are never forgetting it. As far as they're concerned, your mistake is just, that's who you are. And it's all you are. And I'm not just talking about the scholarship here. I'm talking about everything. I mean, they'll smile at you, they'll pat you on the head, but they are never, ever letting you in. But listen, listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, because you don't need them. I mean, they're not going to give it to you? So what? You're going to take it. You're going to do whatever it takes. Do you hear me? You are not going to play by the rules. You're going to go your own way. You're going to do what they won't do. You're going to be smart. You are going to cut corners, and you are going to win. And Better Call Saul is now streaming on Netflix if you want to catch up on the entire series. Number nine in my favorite TV shows of the 2010s is a show that came from Showtime. This is my only pick from that network out of this decade. It's a show that debuted in 2014, and it is called Penny Dreadful.
This series came from John Logan, who wrote a few really good movies from the past 10 years, including Skyfall, uh, which is one of the best Bond movies ever. He wrote The Aviator. He wrote Hugo. So he's written a couple of really good Scorsese movies. And this show, Penny Dreadful, is a love letter to like the old monster and horror stories, uh, the old like universal horror monster stuff, but not even beyond universal, like the old monster and horror stories of literature, classic literature. And it finds a way to bring characters like Dr. Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster, Dorian Gray, Van Helsing, Dracula, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, werewolves, other legendary figures, all into one single world together. So you've got all these classic characters all existing in this one world together, uh, this kind of drab and gray world but the show still manages to be gorgeous, absolutely beautiful show to look at. Um, and it, it includes some really, really good acting, especially by Eva Green, who kind of carries the entire series. She's the main character, really, if you could say that. It's an ensemble show, but she's kind of the main character of this show. Uh, and she, Eva Green, I've always been a sucker for her anyway. I think she's great, but she does some really good work in this show. She's magnetic. Um and just proves that she can carry a TV series. Josh Hartnett is also really good in this. Hadn't seen him really do much in a long time, but he's very good in this show. Uh, Timothy Dalton is really good. Rory Kinnear is fantastic. Rory Kinnear brought a tear to my eye in numerous occasions as Frankenstein's monster in this series. Uh, I just had so much fun watching every episode of this show. That's the thing I want to point out with Penny Dreadful. One of the most fun experiences I've had watching a show in the last decade. I really did not want this show to end. I thought it ended way too soon. Criminally short run. It was only on for three seasons and 27 episodes before it got uh, it got nixed by uh, Showtime. But man, it was just a fun ride. Beth and I had so much fun watching this show. Uh, and it's one of those that I wish would come back. I want to see more episodes. I want to see more adventures from these characters. And these are some of the great characters in the history of literature. So it makes sense uh, that they would all kind of go well together, all these gothic literature characters. So horror TV series that are done with weight and purpose are very tough to find. Uh, but this one was really cool because, you know, it just has this obvious love for classic literature bleeding through it that comes from... Uh, the writer, John Logan, uh, and the actors all just get so into it, take it very seriously, but it's just a kind of a fun show to watch too, because you never know who you're going to meet next. Uh, there's a lot of gore in it. I mean, it's a really, it's an adult show, uh, plenty of sex and stuff like that, but a lot of disturbing things happening in this series, uh, that I thought was very overlooked, underrated all throughout its run, uh, on Showtime. So that's my ninth favorite show of the 2010s, Penny Dreadful, which started in 2014, ran for three seasons on Showtime. My name is Doreen Gray. Vanessa Ives. It's a pleasure, Miss Ives. I couldn't help but notice your skepticism. Am I skeptical? About the room. Rather aggressive in this chinoiserie, and geographically capricious, to say the least. In this one room, this Japanese, Siamese, Egyptian, Balinese, and something I take to be last season's panto of Aladdin. <laughs> Are you a friend of Mr. Lyle's? Never met him before tonight. It was more of a random invitation. Do you get many of those? Entirely. Could say no. I never say no. And if you want to watch Penny Dreadful, and I recommend you do completely, it is now streaming on Netflix. You can watch the whole run of it on Netflix. 
Very fast watch for you. Uh, and it's also streaming on Showtime if you have access to their app. All right, let's go to FX now for my eighth favorite series of the 2010s. And this is one of those shows that I think had certain things not come to light. It could have probably been considered the best show without question of the 2010s. I'm talking about Louie, which uh, debuted in 2010 on FX. I still felt the need to put this show on my top 10 just because of how unpredictable, experimental, original, and enjoyable I found the entire series to be. I loved watching Louie when it was on. This is the show that was created by Louis C.K. Uh, he starred in it. He directed a lot of the episodes he wrote. I think he wrote every single episode of the show. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I, I think he did. But, I mean, it, it, obviously we all found out he was a big piece of shit. Uh, behind the scenes and he was doing things that are just so weird and awful and uh, just you know not the kind of things that you would have guessed he was doing when you see a show that could be this touching and this uh, meaningful and deep at times and this focused on humanity and on uh, matters of the soul as well because Louis was that it wasn't just this sitcom starring a comedian that had his name in the title which is such a worn out way to do a tv show louis just flipped so many things on its head you literally had no idea where this show was going to go in any given season or story arc i mean even in some episodes it was like an art house movie done in the guise of a sitcom if you've never seen louis uh, there were moments in the early seasons of this show where it was very funny and for the first season, it really was kind of like a comedy. It was just, it was a funny show. It was this comedian who was based on Louis C.K.'s real life, but it wasn't really him. It was like a fictional version of him. He's He's got his two daughters. He's divorced. You know, he's living in an apartment in New York, uh, working, living the life of a comedian, all that stuff. So it's got all that stuff going on. And it was really funny for the first season or two. But then it became this really like lofty drama about existence and life as the show went on. And it turned into just a straight drama in some of the later seasons. And it felt really like I said, like an art house movie more than a TV series and certainly more than a sitcom. The actors playing certain characters would just completely change in like wild ways with no explanations. Uh, I mean, you'd have characters change races, change ages, uh, totally change. With no explanation whatsoever, and like the main character Louie didn't even, it was like he didn't even recognize that it had happened. Um, but it happened, and it, it, these are just the kind of things that would happen on this show, and you're supposed to go with it, and it was all, it made the whole thing really exciting. At the center of it all, though, was Louis C.K., his two daughters, who the, the young actors that played them did such a good job, uh, brought so much heart to those parts, and Pamela Adlon, the great Pamela Adlon. Uh, who would go on to have her own really good show in Better Things, uh, which is one that I was very close to putting on my list, but I did, it didn't quite make the cut for me. Um, but she does great work in this series as well. I don't know that I've ever seen a show, honestly, that defied cliche and defied convention as often as Louie uh, did. Uh, so that's the main reason why I had to put it on my list of the top ten shows 
of 2010. It ended after five seasons and 61 total episodes. It is not streaming anywhere right now, but you can find it on DVD. And I do recommend you watch it. I mean, obviously Louis C.K. himself, you can, how you want to feel about his career is another thing. But I think this show is important in the way that it uh, changed what people could do with a sitcom because it was totally just original in every single way. So it was an electrifying watch. That's my eighth favorite show of the 2010s, Louis from FX, uh, which debuted in 2010. Look, I, I liked the feeling of being in love with her. I liked it. But now she's gone and I miss her and it sucks. And I didn't think it was gonna be this bad. And I feel like why even be happy if it's just gonna to lead to this? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't worth it. Boy, misery is wasted on the miserable. What? You know, I'm not entirely sure what your name is, but you are a, a classic idiot. You think spending time with her, kissing her, having fun with her, you think that's what it was all about? That was love? Yeah. This is love, missing her because She's gone, wanting to die. You're so lucky. You're like a walking poem. Would you rather be some kind of a, a fantasy, some kind of a, a, a Disney ride? Is that what you want? Don't you see, this is the good part. This is what you've been digging for all this time. Now you finally have it in your hand, this sweet nugget of love, sweet, sad love, and you want to throw it away. You've got it all wrong. I thought this was the bad part. No, the bad part is when you forget her, when you don't care about her, when you don't care about anything. The bad part is coming, so enjoy the heartbreak while you can, for God's sakes. Pick, 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 pick up the dog poop, would you please? Lucky son of a bitch, I haven't had my heart broken since Marilyn walked out on me since I was, I was 35 years old. What I would give to have that feeling again. I talked about having fun watching a series when I was talking about um, Penny Dreadful, but I don't think I had any more fun watching any show this decade than my pick for my seventh favorite series of the 2010s, and that would be Orphan Black from BBC America, which debuted in 2013. <laughs> fun I had watching any show uh, in the last 10 years and it came in the course of sitting down to binge the entire run of this gem from BBC America. Orphan Black was just one of the best hooks any pilot episode I think has ever produced because in the pilot episode you're following this young woman who is just living her like aimless life this young British woman she's kind of a punk she has like really no place to go she's you know not really doing anything with her life and she happens to see a woman who looks exactly like her when she's at a train station as she's kind of headed back home again uh, to see her adoptive mother so she sees a woman that looks exactly like her at the train station so she tries to follow this woman and considers approaching her and the woman when she's about to approach her she jumps in front of a moving train and kills herself so from there you've got this wild mystery about cloning uh, and, you know, the nature of identity itself unfolding over the course of five seasons 
And like I said, I mean, if that's not a great hook, I don't know what is. But at the center of this whole show, what made Orphan Black such a great watch was Tatiana Maslany, who to me was one of the great discoveries of the 2010s as far as actors go. She gives in this show one of the best performances I have ever seen in TV. I'm not trying to use hyperbole here. I legitimately would call it one of the best performances I have ever seen, certainly one of the most dedicated I've ever seen. Because she plays something like a dozen different clones who all have their own unique personalities and looks. They're all totally different from each other. She plays every single one of them. So she ends up, Tatiana Maslany ends up being in nearly every scene of this series of the entire 50 episode run and she's playing different characters all the time and in some scenes a lot of scenes actually she's playing multiple clones talking to each other and it never looks cheesy it's not like uh, you know back to the future 2 or anything like that don't don't worry about that uh it's it always looks great and there's so many just fun great scenes and interactions between the clones and they all just they have great personalities everyone who watches this show has their favorite clone uh that the, you know the the one that they just kind of fall in love with and want to be friends with um and it you know kind of is becomes a reflection of your own personality or maybe your own hopes and dreams uh but it's just such a there's so much fun to be had in watching this show orphan black is just so funny and intense and heartfelt all in equal measure it's got tons of attitude great lessons about friendship self-love identity lofty stuff like that. Orphan Black is one of those rides from this decade that I recommend everyone take. Even if you're not into sci-fi, just take this ride because it's really just a cool, fun, original show with one of, I'm serious, one of the best performances you'll ever see at the heart of it from Tatiana Maslany, who thankfully won an Emmy for her work in this show, even though it was one of those shows that hardly anyone was watching. Uh, don't worry too much about keeping up with the mythology of the whole series. It's all, it, it's kind of a mess, honestly, storyline wise. It's not, I wouldn't call the, I wouldn't say the story kept me gripped all the way through, but I just wanted to keep watching because I wanted to see what the clones were going to do next and what was happening in their lives and what, who Tatiana Maslany was going to play next and what her next haircut was going to look like. I mean, there's just a lot of reasons to stay glued to Orphan Black. I just, I don't know if the story is one of them because it kind of uh, consumed itself at a certain point, I think. But uh, this show, just a great ride, so much fun. It ran for five seasons and 50 episodes, and I wanted much more. I would definitely be there if they came out with an Orphan Black movie, which there have been rumblings of. So I recommend you watch it if you want to check it out. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, and it's just a hell of a fun show. That's my seventh favorite series of the 2010s, Orphan Black, from BBC America, which debuted in 2013. Let me guess. You're the smart one. You're the wild one. Would you believe we're clones? <laughs> Bourbon rocks. You got it. So you're the scientist the Germans on about? Uh, yes, well, PhD student, um, uh, evolutionary developmental biology. University of Minnesota. I'm heading back there tonight. The German was sick. Should I be worried about that? Well, if you give me the case, I'll know in a couple weeks. Do you know who shot her in the head? Okay. <clears throat> so, six months ago, uh, Katya contacted Beth with this crazy story about her genetic identicals being hunted in Europe. Hunted. So Beth used facial recognition software to, to, to find uh, driver's licenses in North America. Two matches. You and Sokovich. Yes, right. But who is the original? Who 
who's created us, who's killing us. We need to know, but we lost our cop, so however you manage to get into her shoes, we really need you to stay there. Stay a cop to help you. To help us. Help us find out who's killing us. How? I'm not a cop. Beth's partner's gonna figure that out. Being Beth is what got me into this mess in the first place. I know, I know, I get it, I get it, but you can't run away from her. Look, we are your biological imperative now. Catch his fingerprints will match your fingerprints. So get to catch his fingerprint results somehow. I think that's our only option. All right. Just answer me one thing. Anything, yes. If we're genetically identical, do you get that little patch of dry skin between your eyebrows? All right, let's get to my favorite cop show of the 2010s, which comes in as my sixth favorite series of the decade, and that would be FX's Justified. There was just so much Southern attitude and grit in this show. Timothy Oliphant and Walton Goggins have one of the best back and forth hero and villain relationships in TV history. And it's a very complicated hero and villain relationship because these are guys who went to high school together in this very small town in, uh, in Kentucky, in coal mining country, Kentucky. And they went their separate ways after school. Goggins ends up becoming this kind of, uh, neo-Nazi, uh, former coal miner who becomes obsessed with explosives, with blowing things up after he spent time working with dynamite in the mines. Meanwhile, Timothy Oliphant's character goes on to become a U.S. Marshal uh, who works down in Miami, Florida, and gets in trouble for a shooting that he has to uh, prove was justified, uh, which is where the name of the show uh, comes from, but anyway, as a punishment for what he did, and he's kind of known in the, uh, among the people uh, in the U.S. Marshal's office for having kind of an itchy trigger finger, and he's, you know, he's, like, he's kind of a quick-draw artist. He's uh, very good at pulling that gun out and using it whenever he thinks a point needs to be made, but he gets in some trouble, so they send him back to work in that town. So he comes back and uh, has to kind of bring justice to uh, this small town in Kentucky, which is full of colorful characters that are all over this series, including so many great villains. Usually the way that Justified worked was every season had kind of a new villain that was introduced, and the whole arc that season would involve Timothy Oliphant's character um, trying to bring down that villain for whatever reason. But there was a lot more going on than just that as well. The setting was refreshing, I thought, for a TV series to tackle. Uh, because it's set in rural America and it wasn't loaded with like stereotypes of country hillbilly people. Um, so that was really refreshing. The writing was good. It was just the show, the whole thing about Justified was it was just refreshing, fun for the cop genre, for a cop show not to be set in some major city uh, and not to follow all the same old tropes of, oh, this guy's an alcoholic and blah, blah, blah. It's not, and you know, he's got a failing marriage and everything. This was a single guy who was just played by kind of his own rules. I mean, I know that's that's an old genre cliche, but Oliphant does it with such earnestness, and he's so good in it. And Walton Goggins is so fantastic in this show. I talked in the last episode about The Shield and how great The Shield was and how I consider it one of the best TV shows in history, and Goggins is a main reason for that. Well, he carried that over into Justified and 
uh, continued to stake his claim as being one of the best TV actors in the history of the medium. I just thought this show was really fun um, and uh, intense at times and just really intriguing. And also it had one of my favorite final scenes in TV history. The, the last episode of Justified was really really good. It was a, a great way to close a show that I think was a little unheralded, but uh, so much fun. I think if you ask a lot of people who really enjoy television and people who enjoy police shows, they'll tell you that Justified, if they saw it, was one of their favorites of this decade. It certainly was one of mine. The theme song was pretty shitty, so I'll rip on it for that, but the show itself was fantastic. Just skip over the theme song. It ran for six seasons and 78 episodes on FX. It's now streaming on Prime Video from start to finish. I totally recommend you watch it if you're into cop shows at all. Uh, it's Justified from FX. It debuted in 2010, and it's my sixth favorite show of the 2010s. Old boy by the name of Hut McKean mean anything to you? Let me guess. I killed him. My men killed him. My dope killed him and my daddy killed him next thing comes out of your mouth is how do you sleep at night boy crowder well do you know how because i know who i am do you you're a slave disenfranchised don't even know it you drive your shitty truck to your shitty house live out your shitty life you think you're better than me because you play by the rules whose rules my life is my own. You ain't even heard a word I said. I don't give a shit about what you said. I'm an outlaw. All right, number five. We're getting into the real heavy hitters now here in my 10 favorite TV shows of the decade. Number five on my list comes from 2014 and once again from AMC. It is Halt and Catch Fire. AMC got tons of credit for its shows in the 2000s like Breaking Bad and Mad Men, and for good reason. But it did have a couple of really great TV shows in the 2010s that haven't gotten nearly the press. I already talked about um, Better Call Saul. But Halt and Catch Fire was one of those criminally overlooked great shows from this past decade. It was epic in scope. I mean, in the course of four seasons, this show spanned the course of more than a decade in the lives of its characters. Um, and it has so many great performance performances from uh, start to finish. Lee Pace is fantastic in this show. Uh, Mackenzie Davis became one of my favorite actors with her work in this show. Scoot McNary, Carrie Bechet, Toby Huss. These are not actors that you probably know from me naming, but they are fantastic in this series. So much credit needs to go to the casting department that worked on Halt and Catch Fire because they found some true gems in what were some really, aside from Lee Pace, some really unknown actors and and these actors created some of my favorite characters of the past decade. What the show is about, if you've never, you don't know anything about Halt and Catch Fire, it's set in the world of technology in the early days of it. So it's, I think the first season takes place in like 1983, 1984, right at the birth of the personal computer, the PC movement. Um, and it's set down in Texas at this small, like, you know, family-owned computer company. And uh, Lee Pace's character is this Steve Jobs kind of eccentric you know, genius who's not necessarily 
a genius when it comes to, um, you know, programming computers, but he is when it comes to running business and creating things and being an innovator. Uh, and he finds himself in this company with these people who are geniuses at putting together computers, at programming software. Um, and they go on to form this great partnership that lasts for, you know, more than a decade in their lives. And it, it fractures a lot over the years. They, they clash, they butt heads, but the show kind of charts the course of uh, some of the great technological innovations of the 1980s and into uh, the mid-1990s, obviously going through the early part of the Internet era. I, I just thought this show was full of insight into the technology industry and just how business works. It, I learned a lot about how business works and how much of a pain in the ass it can be to be someone who is an innovator, how restless you have to be, how lonely it is to be in that kind of thing and how pointless the whole pursuit can ultimately feel. Um, but also how uh, finding the right teammates can make all the difference. That's really the uh, lesson in the end when it comes down to this uh, in Halt and Catch Fire. Uh, this show just had tons of style, bunch of great music from the 1980s and 1990s, great costumes. Um, and it just takes its characters' relationships in interesting directions all the time. I, I just had a hard time predicting what was going to come next in Halt and Catch Fire, and I had a ton of fun binging this show from start to finish. Found myself quite addicted to it. Uh, I'm not a big binge watcher, but Halt and Catch Fire was one of those that I really did binge, and I just was sad when it finally came to an end. It only ran for four seasons and 40 episodes, uh, but it's... Uh, going to be one of those shows that I remember very fondly from the 2010s. It's my fifth favorite show of the decade, Halt and Catch Fire from AMC. It debuted in 2014, and it's now streaming for you on Netflix. How did we all get here today? We walked through this door. We don't have to build a big white box or a stadium or invent rock and roll. The moment we decide what the web is, we've lost. The moment we try to tell people what to do with it, we've lost. All we have to do is build a door and let them inside. When I was five, my mother took me to the city and we went through the Holland Tunnel and it was basic, concrete and steel. But it was also my excitement sitting in the back seat, wondering when it was going to be our turn to emerge. It was the explosion of sunlight. And when we exited the tunnel, all of Manhattan was laid out before us. And that was the best part of the trip. The amazing possibility to be able to go anywhere within something that is magnificent and never ending. This is the first web browser. The rudimentary one, CERN built to view and edit research. I wrote it up here for you to see how simple it is. It takes up one white board, that's basic concrete and steel. But we can take this and we can build a door and we can be the first ones to do it. All right, my fourth favorite show of the decade is one that I have raved about on this podcast since it came out. And that is FX's weirdly exhilarating TV series Fargo, which debuted in 2014. You know that I love a good anthology series, and Fargo to me was the best anthology show of the decade in my eyes. And this was a, a decade that had some really good anthology shows. I mean, you think of Black Mirror, 
from this uh, from this decade. But I think Fargo is the best of the anthology shows of this last decade, and I think it's arguably the best crime series of the decade as well. Uh, every season of Fargo, if you never saw it, follows a new story, a new cast in the world of the film Fargo, which is basically just the world of underbelly crime in Minnesota and the Dakotas. Every season has been just fantastic and electrifying to watch and totally original in their own ways. Um, not derivative of the movie at all, other than the accents. There's not a whole lot. I mean, just that that weird atmosphere that the Coen Brothers movie had is, is there all the way through. But the intensity is ratcheted up, I think, in the TV series in a way that it was not even in the movie. Uh, there's so much great acting in this show. That's the thing that far- made Fargo, for me, such a, one of the great shows of the decade is the acting. You, Billy Bob Thornton does one of the most chilling villain performances you'll ever see in the first season of this show. Allison Tolman, brilliant. Uh, Martin Freeman, again, fantastic in that first season. Kirsten Dunst uh, and Gene Smart in the second season uh, were so good. Ewan McGregor, Carrie Coon, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead in the third season. Everyone just bringing their A-game. Lots of big-time actors doing really great, interesting work in this show. And I've just... I've been on the edge of my seat and so engrossed with every season and every episode of the show. And the writing of the creator, Noah Hawley, has amazed me so much because uh, he found so many fresh ways to make this show just dark, grim, pitch black, um, but also funny in a lot of ways as well. And Hawley, to me, is the real star that comes out of Fargo. His writing, I can't wait to see what he does next. He's supposed to do the next Star Trek movie, and I'm... Uh, Pretty excited to see what he's going to do with that because, I mean, who knew that he would take the movie Fargo in such great directions? I remember when I heard they were doing a a TV version, I was kind of rolling my eyes. But uh, if you slept on Fargo for any reason, you got to give the show a watch. The first season especially is gripping and tense. But honestly, I've liked the following seasons just as much. Even if they were less visceral, uh, I found them to be almost more... Interesting because they were less predictable. Uh, The show so far has had three seasons and 30 episodes that have aired, uh, and it will continue with a fourth season that's going to be coming on in 2020. But Fargo is now streaming for you on Hulu if you want to check out those three seasons, and I completely recommend that you do if you like crime television at all. And who doesn't? Come on. That's my fourth favorite show of the decade, uh, Fargo from FX, which debuted in 2014. Evening, officer. Evening. License and registration, please. We could do it that way. You ask me for my papers, I tell you it's not my car, that I borrowed it. See where things go from there? You could do that. Or you could go get in your car and drive away. Now, why would I do that? Because some roads you shouldn't go down. Because maps used to say there'd be dragons here. Now they don't. But that don't mean the dragons aren't there. You step out of the car, please, sir. How old's your kid? He said step out of the car. Let me tell you what's going to happen, Officer Grimley. I'm going to roll my window up, and then I'm going to drive away. And you're going to go home to your daughter. And every few years, you're going to look at her face, 
and know that you're alive because you chose not to go down a certain road on a certain night, that you chose to walk into the light instead of into the darkness. All right, number three, one of my most beloved TV series of all time, and it came from NBC, my only network show to make the list, my third favorite series of the decade, it is NBC's Hannibal, which made its glorious debut in 2013. Speaking of visceral television, man, I don't think any show of this decade had as many visceral delights as Hannibal did. I have watched this entire series twice now and was fascinated both times, especially by the art direction, but also by the writing and the acting. This was definitely my favorite network series of the past decade, and uh, it, it is just an incredibly gruesome, sexual, dark series for being on network tv i cannot believe every time i watch this show i can't believe it aired on nbc but i applaud that network for taking it on uh because i mean it's not an easy watch and it was on network television this last decade it's incredible to me mads mickelson showed himself to be one of the great actors of his time in his performance as hannibal lecter i mean what a part hannibal lecter one of those parts that one actor has become so well-known for uh, in Anthony Hopkins, obviously. And Hopkins just became, you know, an A-list massive superstar later in his career than a lot of actors do because of his work in movies like The Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal and Red Dragon. But, you know, Brian Cox was great as Hannibal Lecter as well in, uh, in Manhunter, uh, the Michael Mann movie. So pretty much every actor who stepped into the role of Hannibal Lecter has given it something really good, but I would go out on a limb to say that Mads Mikkelsen is the best Hannibal Lecter there has ever been, and that's because in the space of this show, which only lasted for three seasons, he really got to stretch his legs and become the part even more and charm the shit out of you while also grossing you out the entire time with uh, what he's eating. The writers of this show, I just feel like, were truly twisted in the ways they'd imagine to kind of kill the victims uh, who would be killed throughout, and the creepy serial killers that they came up with, because the whole show's not, it's not just Will Graham versus Hannibal Lecter, it's Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter working together to try to bring down other serial killers, all the while Lecter is carrying out his own killings, and Graham has uh, no idea who it is that are doing his killings. So, you know, I'd call it probably the best horror TV show in the history of TV, honestly, at this point, pure horror, um, I think Hannibal is it, uh, and I certainly think it's the best horror TV show to come out in the past decade, and there have been some really good ones. It's tough to be gory and beautiful, but Hannibal really did pull it off. Uh, this show has some of the most unforgettable visuals that I have ever seen in TV, things that I still think about and still give me nightmares <laughs> at this point. Uh, like I said, it ran for just three seasons and 39 total episodes, but what a ride, man. I love Hannibal. I think I'm going to watch it again at sometime soon. Can't recommend it to you enough. It's my third favorite show of the 2010s. Uh, it aired on NBC, premiering in 2013. It is now streaming for you to watch on Prime Video if you want to check it out. And give it a watch, man. If you have the stomach for it, Hannibal is unforgettable stuff. You were determined to know the Chesapeake River, Dr. Gideon. Now is your opportunity. You intend me to be my own last supper? Yes. 
How does one politely refuse a dish in circumstances such as these? One doesn't. The tragedy is not to die, Abel, but to be wasted. My compliments to the chef. All right, number two on my list of my favorite shows of this past great decade of television. I'm going to go back to FX for this one. And it's a series that debuted in 2013. It is The Americans. I'm not even finished watching The Americans at this point. Uh, I am still, I'm in the fifth season of it of six. But this show easily already makes my list of the best shows from this past decade. Uh, the topics that this show tackles and the style of it are truly epic. And I don't want to throw that word around lightly, but The Americans is epic all the way through. The performances are fantastic across the board. I mean, cinema-level performances unquestionably. Oscar-level kind of stuff if this was a movie. Carrie Russell, to me, one of those actors that I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to. I mean, obviously, I always thought she was attractive and she seemed like a nice person in interviews and things like that. But she wasn't one of those actors that I was like enamored with, thought she was one of the all time greats. But she separated herself to me as one of my favorite actors of her generation because of her work in this series simply. And she's really good in Waitress as well, which I hadn't seen until I had started to watch this show. But my entire opinion of Carrie Russell has changed so much since I watched The Americans. I see her as such like a badass, hard ass. Uh, now because of her work in this series. Matthew Reese and Noah Emmerich, also wonderful through the entire run of the show as well. If you don't know anything about The Americans, it is a spy show, um, and it's set in the Cold War, the height of the Cold War, 1980s Washington, D.C., uh, in like suburban Washington, D.C., and it's about this married couple played by Matthew Reese and Carrie Russell uh, who are together in real life, so it really gives them some great chemistry on the show. But they are Russian spies, KGB spies, highly trained, uh, who have lived in America for, you know, 20 years, more than 20 years. They have two kids of their own who are Americans, and uh, the kids don't know anything about their lives as spies. And they walk this really intense line of living these double lives as uh, deadly spies doing important work for the KGB while also evading their FBI, you know, neighbor who happens to be one of their best friends and also uh, trying to hide their identities from their children the entire way through. So it's just this fascinating nonstop cat and mouse game through the entire show. But The Americans is about so many other things. It's about patriotism, identity, religion, family, uh, deep, deep stuff here. There's a reason why this show uh, has won two Peabody Awards, because it tackles some serious stuff. It's the best show to me since The Sopranos when it comes to tackling the idea of living multiple lives that are so drastically different. Mad Men was obsessed with this as well. Mad Men was about living double lives, but th as far as like a drastic double life, because in The Sopranos, you know, I mean, Tony was killing people, you know, uh, running weapons, running drugs, doing horrible things. Uh, when he wasn't at home being really honestly a great dad uh, to his kids and a caring father, not a great husband, but a great father, I think, in a lot of scenes. And in The Americans, Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese's characters are, uh, their names are Philip and Elizabeth Jennings. They are great parents 
And then they'll go out, sneak out at night and do brutal, fucking brutal things that make Tony Soprano, you know, I mean, kind of look like a wimp, to be honest with you, with some of the things they're doing. I just cannot recommend this show enough. If you really like serious drama, uh, if you like serious acting, if you like weighty issues to be explored in your TV shows, you got to watch The Americans. It's a it's a must-see from the 2010s. The hair, the makeup, the overall styling of the show, fantastic as well. The music's great from the 1980s. That's included in it. Um, I just feel like the 1980s has rarely looked so lived in and real on screen and gritty. It's that gritty 80s thing. It's not that glossy 80s kind of thing, which is more of what uh, Halt and Catch Fire was more the glossy 80s kind of thing. The Americans is more the real gritty 1980s that I really enjoy seeing a lot on screen. This show ran for six seasons and 75 episodes of totally tense storytelling it's my second favorite show of the 2010s it's the americans the whole run of it is right now on prime video if you want to check it out it originally aired on fx starting in 2013 you told them what what are you talking about you told them i considered defecting that's why this is happening i didn't what did you tell them You're lying. I can see it. What did you tell them? I told them that you liked it here too much. Philip, Philip. Don't touch me. Don't act like I made something up. They asked me and I answered. You loved it here and you started loving it more and more. Now look what finally happened. I fit in. I fit in like I was supposed to. And yes, I liked it. So what? I was supposed to be able to trust you and I did. And I shouldn't have. I never should have. That's not true. And finally, have you guessed it? My favorite show of the 2010s is a series that came from HBO. But it's not that show that came from HBO in the 2010s. From 2014, it is The Leftovers. You ask me, no show was more thought-provoking, more unpredictable, and more original in this last decade than HBO's The Leftovers. In just three seasons, this series addressed so many important, lofty things about the human condition, about our desire to solve every question, every problem of the universe, and to find answers after great tragedies where no answers can really be found. The Leftovers continue to hammer us with questions, and it provided so few answers. But unlike Lost, which this show came from the same guy, the guy who basically ran Lost in Damon Lindelof, unlike Lost, though, The Leftovers was satisfying all the way through because it managed to keep the scope smaller. It managed to keep the whole thing focused on characters more so than the big mysteries Um that were at the center of its story. If you don't know anything about The Leftovers, what it's about, again, talk about a great hook, uh, it starts off as 2% of the world's population has suddenly just vanished, disappeared into thin air. 2%, so a small number, but it's a ton of people, millions of people, uh, have just disappeared from the earth with no answers being given. No one knows what to make of it. Is it uh, you know, something that's pre- been predicted in religions all around the world? Who knows? 
but 2% of the population has disappeared, and we are focusing on the leftovers, the people, obviously, who have been left behind as they try to pick up the pieces of their lives when they've lost family members, lost children, lost you know parents, lost spouses, friends, whoever, uh, just with no answers whatsoever, and no bodies to be able to bury or anything because their bodies vanished as well. So a lot of just unbroken, unanswered grief throughout this entire series. Uh, but the lead performances in The Leftovers were master classes in acting. Justin Thoreau, Carrie Coon, Amy Brenneman, Anne Dowd, Regina King, Margaret Qualley, all gave incredible performances all throughout this entire show. And there are more people I'm leaving out. Pretty much everyone who showed up in this series did wonderful, haunting work as it went on, especially Ann Dowd, man. She really sticks out. And Carrie Coon, God, Carrie Coon was so good. She was one of those great discoveries of the 2010s for me uh, as just a fan of acting. I just love the work that I've seen her do and everything I've seen her in now. Since then, every season of The Leftovers uh, would change the show in some dramatic and vital way about its execution. They would change the setting. They would change ma major characters. So everything felt fresh and mysterious as the series kept going. This was also a show, though, where the finale should not have lived up to everything that its run had set up, but it ended up having one of the best finales in TV history, to be completely honest with you. Just an amazing, important show that completely deserves its place alongside HBO's best shows ever. And I think um, it was honestly TV's crowning achievement of the 2010s. I wouldn't just say it was my favorite show of the 2010s. I would say it was the best TV show of the 2010s, and I do not say that lightly. That is a lot to pull off over the course of just three seasons and 28 episodes. But uh, Damon Lindelof and his writers and his actors did that with The Leftovers, which aired on HBO starting in 2014. You can stream the entire run of it on HBO now. Totally recommend you do that. It was my favorite show of the 2010s, The Leftovers. Nora, hmm? how'd you break it? I don't want to lie to you. Then don't. I broke it to cover something up. Show me. It's the logo for the Wu-Tang Band. I think you mean the Wu-Tang Clan. Right. Big fan. <laughs> what were you covering up? Um, my kids' names. The artist did a beautiful job. It was very tasteful, very understated. And it didn't hurt, the needle, it was, <laughs> felt good. But, um, just as he was finishing up, I played it out, I thought. For the rest of my life, people would come up to me and they would say, oh, what a nice tattoo. Who are Aaron and Jeremy? And I would say, they're my children. <laughs> I'm Nora Kirst. Ask me about my poor departed children. It's pathetic. Uh, so I pointed to the first thing I saw on the wall. It looked like a phoenix. And I, I told the guy to give me that one instead. Just cover it up, please, like it never fucking happened. I was having a bad day. <laughs> 
are not going crazy, Nora. How are you not going crazy? After Evie? Evie died. And I got the barrier. I got the barrier. And obviously, I left Game of Thrones off the list. If you're wondering about Game of Thrones and how I could leave a show that was that massive off of a list of, you know, my 10 favorite shows of the 2010s when a lot of people would say that it probably defined 2010s TV, uh, there was just, to me, there's just no way that I can justify putting a show that had half of its run being mediocre at best on a list of the best shows because th- those 10 shows I gave you, their entire runs were really arresting and really good from start to finish. There was not a big dip in quality in any of them. Um, but in Game of Thrones, man, the, it was so good for the first few seasons, and then it was just so predictable, dull, and and just boring uh, over its last few seasons. So at, half of its run was not very good. So that's the that's the problem with Game of Thrones. I just could not put it on here. It was certainly the event series of the decade, but I just don't think Game of Thrones is going to hold up in TV history as one of those shows that people talk about. Honestly, 10 years from now, I don't think people are going to be talking about Game of Thrones the way that people still today talk about The Wire, The Sopranos, Seinfeld, Lost, Breaking Bad, and some of the other all-time great shows. I just don't see Game of Thrones being on there. I see Game of Thrones being one of those you had to be there when it aired kind of shows or else, you know, you kind of miss the boat and you're not going to really talk about it too much because it's just not... It was a fun show to watch along with people, but other than that, I, I don't think it has much lasting value uh, beyond that. That's just my take, though. It's a hot one. It's a steaming hot one. That's my take. So my top 10 favorite shows of the 2010s. One more time. Better Call Saul, number 10. Penny Dreadful, number 9. Louie, number 8. Orphan Black, number 7. Justified, number 6. Halt and Catch Fire, number 5. Fargo, number 4. Hannibal, number 3. The Americans at number 2. And The Leftovers, at number one. What do you think of my list? Is it crap? Did you like any of those shows? Did you love any of those shows? Did you hate any of those shows? Give me a shout at theclintdavis at gmail.com. All right, I'm going to take a take a breather here, and by that, I mean I'm going to hit my stogie a few times, and I'm going to pass it over to Andy. He's going to get into his favorite releases, his favorite music of the 2010s, and also what this decade will be remembered for uh, as a decade of new music. So I can't wait to hear that, man. Sit back and relax. I'll be back to give you my 10 favorite movies of the 2010s after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Thank you for uh, for tuning in and happy holidays. Yeah, that's right. I said it. Happy holidays. You know that that expression is inclusive. All right, that's a good thing. You know, I I'm actually I'm seeing somebody right now. Uh, she was raised Jewish, you know, and, and and she appreciates happy holidays. Nothing wrong with being inclusive. Anyway, uh, hey, look, if you're not being notified whenever a new episode of the Stream Police drops, well, what are you waiting for? Turn those notifications on. The first 20 listeners per episode are eligible for a $500 gift certificate. Just kidding. Uh, Maybe once our sponsorship comes through. Uh, In order for that to happen, though, (laughs) you will need to rate and review us. Please do so wherever you get your podcast. We've got uh, several reviews already, and I know that that I speak for Clint. When I say, you know, it really does mean a ton to both of us. Um, We have fragile egos. That stuff goes a long way. All right, let's get on with it. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. You know, it's hard to believe the year is almost over. Actually, the decade is almost over. I I can't even remember what I was doing on New Year's Eve in 2009, back when we were about to begin this decade. The teens, I suppose we'll call them. The 2010s, the teens, I don't, I don't know what they, I don't know what this is. I don't know where we are. I have a feeling this year I'll have like toothpicks in my eyelids uh, trying to stay awake. Before the occasion, Clint is discussing some of his favorite films of the past decade, so I figured it would be a good idea to take a look back at the past 10 years in music. The past 10 years in music. The best-selling artists of this most recent decade. Adele and Taylor Swift, out front ahead by a huge margin. Technically, Adele was the biggest selling or the best selling artist of the decade. Taylor Swift, not too far behind. In the distant third was Eminem, followed by Justin Bieber and Drake. The biggest hits of this decade? Party Rock Anthem. I know. Shape of You by Ed Sheeran, The Chainsmokers Closer, Girls Like You by uh, Maroon 5, Cardi B. The biggest, the single biggest hit of the past 10 years was Uptown Funk. That's according to Billboard. If you want to compare this decade against the last one, here are the biggest hits of the aughts. That's the year 2000 through 2009. Yeah, from Usher, Lil Jon, Luda, Low, Florida, T-Pain. I got a feeling the Black Eyed Peas, How You Remind Me by Nickelback. Number one, Mariah Carey, We Belong Together. Come back, baby, please, cause we belong together. Who else am I gonna leave? No one time's better off. Who's gonna talk to me? 
Between the two decades, the biggest hit singles, in my opinion, more or less interchangeable. I mean, it's all pop. I guess I kind of like the Mariah Carey song better than Uptown Funk. But the biggest selling artists of this past decade, again, I mentioned Adele, Taylor Swift, Eminem, Justin Bieber, and Drake. In the 2000s, here's what that list looked like. It was, again, Eminem, but this time joined with Linkin Park, Britney Spears, Coldplay, and Pink. Pink? I think I'd take this most recent decade's artists. And you know what? We can go back even further. The five most successful acts of the 90s, Celine Dion, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Nirvana, and Michael Jackson. You know, I've said this before. You know, I I think the 90s were basically a lost decade. (laughs) Unpopular opinion, I know. uh, but, But so much of that stuff just bores me. This is kind of fun. While we're looking back, it's worth noting that one of the best-selling artists of the 2000s, the Ots, was actually the Beatles. Remember that uh, compilation of their number one singles? I think it was called Beatles 1. Sold over 11 million copies. Technically, that made them one of the most successful bands of the decade. I think they broke up like 30 years prior. The Beatles did not show up on on this decade's list. So let's make predictions. You know, when VH1 does its I Love the Teens shows, I have a feeling this decade will be remembered by EDM, Trap, Bro Country, and Taylor Swift. You agree with that? EDM, Trap Music, Bro Country, and Taylor Swift. Shoot me an email. How do you think this decade in music will be remembered. Sedlakjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, the word journal, all squished together at gmail.com. They'll talk about Adele, too, but she'll have a long career. So people won't think of her, like, exclusively as an artist belonging to this decade. My prediction is that it'll be different for Taylor Swift. She'll be like the Michael Jackson of the 80s. But still, lots of good music this past decade. And you know, this show, The Stream Police, born in this decade. So we covered a lot of this music as it came out. So I thought it'd be fun to tell you about what what I enjoyed listening to the most over the past 10 years. Just This is pure enjoyment. And these are albums. Okay, I'm ranking albums. I'm still an album guy. Nothing beats A good, complete album. So here are my favorites. First, I need to give an honorable mention shout-out to Harry Styles. His uh, self-titled solo release came out in uh, 2017. And look, it was just a shitload of fun. She walked away through a cheap pack of cigarettes. Hard liquor mixed with a bit of intellect. And all the boys, they were saying they were into it. Attitude, perspective. This was interesting music from an interesting young guy. And I don't care if he was part of a boy band or, or whatever. He could be part of the Irish mob for all I care. When you make music with, with this much soul, you're going to be fine in my book. 
All right, let's start the um, the list for real. First, I want to touch on um, Beyonce's Lemonade, released April 23rd, 2016. Truth be told, I was not a huge Beyonce fan before this. It was Lemonade that changed my mind. You know why? It sounds like independence. Hard won independence. You listen to it. And you immediately feel like you're on her side. Her singing, the things that she says are so specific, you know exactly what she's pissed off about. It's another woman and you can see it. You can see everything perfectly. It's a vivid record. There are detours into childhood issues, detours into politics. But somehow all these things together give credence to that central theme of betrayal. It's a statement record, and as statement records go, it is a hell of a statement. It sold 3 million units. That's going platinum three times. You know what else I love? Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy released at the beginning of the decade, November of 2010. 13 tracks on this album. It's an overused word, but I'll use it anyway. They are epic. The tracks are epic, every one of them. You've heard of prog rock, progressive rock like Rush. This is prog rap. Each song has like these mini suites and instrumental interludes and and just movements. Toward the end of the album, Hell of a Life, followed by Blame Game, forget about it. I'm not a big fan of ego stroking. Self-indulgence gets boring. Not into it. But that's what makes this a remarkable listen. It is self-indulgent. Self-indulgent is hell. But I'm still hooked from beginning to end. West is as open as he was like on his first album. And he wouldn't be that open again until the next entry on this list. Maybe I'm magic. Ta-da, address me as your highness. Kanye's second decade as an artist uh, 
really was a strange one. I mean, they were, you know, he's freaking out on Twitter. He was supporting Donald Trump with bizarre statements and reasoning. He married Kim Kardashian, spoke of bipolars, bipolar disorder diagnosis. <laughs> but he still managed to release two of my favorite albums of the decade. And the second was just released this year. It's called Jesus is King. Stretch my hands to you. Life like this is what your life like. Try to live the life right. People really know you push your buttons like type right. This is like a movie, but it's really very lifelike. Every single night right. Every single fight right. I was looking at the gram and I don't even like lights. I was screaming at my daddy, told me it ain't Christ like. I was screaming at the referee, just like Mike. Looking for a bright light. Seek what your life like. This is the total opposite of my beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. Put them together, and you probably have something close to the complete man. The former was sprawling and and, and building and ambitious. Jesus' king is tight and focused and humble. The one thing, though, they do have in common, at the center of both records, is sin. He just spoke about them differently, spoke about that sin differently. And by the end of the decade, Kanye had quite a few more sins than he did at the beginning. Though I suppose that's true for all of us. Ultimately, this is deeply committed gospel music. Listen to his voice strain so much that it sounds like it's about to give out on the song God Is. Or listen to the insistence on Sela. It's urgent. It gets your attention. It makes you recognize. And isn't that what religious music is supposed to do? Now, I guess when I listen to Jesus is King, I imagine a guy who is exhausted and in turn confided in the one inspiration he's always had. Spirituality has always been part of Kanye West's music. And when he was pushed to the limit, likely his own doing, That's what he fell back on. And as a personal aside, he came to Dayton, to Dayton, Ohio, after a mass shooting last summer. He held a Sunday service show there. I was out of town at the time, but spoke to several people who went. And they said that genuinely it was a healing event for them. So I was delighted that an album as good as this one came on the heels of that performance. So folks in town would have something to hold on to for good. If you woke and wake up, would you just kiss and make up? Even with the bitter cup, forgave my brothers and drank up. Did everything but gave up. Stabbed my back, I came front. Still we win, we prayed up. From rap to country, next on my list is Chief by Eric Church, released July 26, 2011. There's a little of everything here. Shit-talking, ballads, stonesy kind of rambling rock. It's, it's like, it's like um, you took like the attitude of Waylon Jennings. And some of the guitar work and, and production values of like Brad Paisley. And you smushed them together. It's not a bad combo. It's also one of those classic albums that flows effortlessly from one song to another. You can't skip any one of them. 
other than country music Jesus, that song sucks. But why be nitpicky? From a man who sang about Springsteen to the man himself, next is Wrecking Ball from the boss, Bruce Springsteen, released March 6th, 2012. You think it's your time to step to the line and bring on your wrecking ball. Bring on your wrecking ball. Bring on your wrecking ball. Come on and take your best shot. Let me see what you got. Bring on your wrecking ball. I'm a lifelong Bruce Springsteen fan, but Wrecking Ball was the first album of his that seemed to match up with what I was experiencing in my own life. I was young when I first started listening. So I didn't personally relate to, you know, songs about layoffs at the plant or the economic downturn of the late 70s. But in 2012, in 2012, I was a young guy who just entered the workforce. We were in the thick of the Great Recession. I was working in journalism. I got a job. I was making no money. It was tough. And the dream of being a journalist was starting to rub away. And this record sympathized with those feelings. It is a record about tough times, directly influenced by the Great Recession, and the feelings that came about during the Great Recession. Here's also something that's interesting about this. On Wrecking Ball, Bruce Springsteen finally began to embrace certain things that he'd flirted with for years. Celtic music. You hear it on... Shackled and Drawn, in American Land. He embraced hip-hop. Now, he's spoken about hip-hop in interviews, had been a longtime fan, but now you finally heard that influence on his own record. Death to My Hometown is a song of righteous anger. He didn't walk anything back. He just unfucking loaded Plus, Springsteen's love of history is explicit in a lot of these songs, particularly a song called We are alive. More than anything, the sequencing is important here. It starts off very pissed. But it almost feels as if the artist works through these things as the record plays. It culminates in a gorgeous version of a song called Land of Hope and Dreams, captured so much better here than it was on a live album a few years earlier. In his 2016 autobiography, Bruce Springsteen wrote that he was upset That Wrecking Ball wasn't a bigger hit. Makes two of us. Bruce Springsteen 
Seems like a good time to talk about Bob Dylan. Next up, Bob Dylan's Tempest. To date, it's the last album of original material that he has released. It came out on September 12th, 2012. Listen to that Duquesne whistle blowing Blowing like gonna sweep my world away I'm gonna stop in Carbondale and keep on going That Duquesne train gonna ride me night and day Starting in 1997, Dylan really changed his style of writing so that each line in each song more or less stood on its own. Songs were collections of thoughts. And I love that. Because, like, each song may have 20 or 30 different observations about men, women, war, greed, power, whatever. After this came out, he just started putting out covers albums and spent the rest of the decade doing that. Whatever, Bob. I wake up every morning with that woman in my bed Everybody telling me she's gone to my head Listen to that Duquesne whistle blowing Blow like it's gonna kill me dead Alright, let's recap. Beyonce's Lemonade, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, and Jesus is King from Kanye West, Chief by Eric Church, Wrecking Ball by Bruce Springsteen, and Tempest by Bob Dylan. That's six, four more to go. One album that struck me... And 29 million other people. Adele's 21, released on January 24th, Set Fire to the Rain, Rumor Has It, Someone Like You, Rolling in the Deep. All these songs were top 20 hits. It put real soul, I mean real soul, on the Billboard charts. And see what happens when you give people real art? They embrace it. They embrace it like hell. Of course, all those great songs were indeed hits. The best song on the album, however, was never released as a single. In fact, Adele didn't even write it. It was originally recorded by The Cure. But Adele is known for being a real fan of music, and her cover songs and her selection of cover songs reflect that. She's covered Bob Dylan. She's covered the Rock and Tours, Aretha Franklin. In her cover here, Love Song by The Cure is just a delight. And when she takes on somebody else's song, you can tell she takes that responsibility seriously. There's a lot of beauty in that.
All right, we've made it to the top three. Here we go. I want to talk about Jay-Z's 444, released June 30th, 2017. Die, Jay-Z. This ain't back in the days. You don't need an alibi, Jay-Z. Cry, Jay-Z. We know the pain is real, but you can't heal what you never revealed. What's up, Jay-Z? You know you owe the truth to all the youth that fell in love with Jay-Z. You got people you love, you sold drugs to. You got high in life, that shit drunk you. You walking around like you invincible. You dropped out of school, you lost your principles. I know people backstab you, I felt that too. But this fuck everybody attitude ain't natural. Unless you're Donald Trump, we all embrace adulthood sooner or later. And this album, 444, is where Jay-Z finally did it. He admits to infidelity. He speaks about his uh, mom being gay and generally shoots holes through the whole mystique of being Jay-Z. His records are killer. The Black Album sounds as unbelievable today as it did when it came out. But his rhymes were getting repetitive. He's awesome. Everyone else is shit. Over and over and over. He's rich. You're lame. All right, dude. We get it. But this is where the man finally owns his own baggage. And he sounds totally confident and ready to do so. It's a 180 in more ways than one. No ID was the only beat maker on this record. Guest spots were minimal. Frank Ocean and Beyonce show up. That's about all. For the record, there were about five guest spots on the album before this one and 11 on the album before that. That was the Blueprint 3. This is just a grown man's rap record. You mature faster than me. I wasn't ready. So I apologize. I seen the innocence. Leave your eyes. I still mourn this death. I apologize for all the stillborns because I wasn't present. Your body wouldn't accept it. I apologize to all the women whom I toyed with your emotion because I was emotionless. And I apologize because at your best, you would love. And because... I fall short of what I say I'm all about. Your eyes leave with the soul that your body once housed. One of the biggest tragedies of the decade was how overlooked this next album was. It's Brandon Flowers' The Desired Effect, released May 15th, 2015. You probably know Brandon Flowers as the front man for The Killers. He's done great work with them, but here he just sounds totally free. Just sounds like he's following his muse. And it doesn't let him down. He wrestles with himself and with, with rock and roll and 80s pop. And he comes out with something really thoughtful. It's heavy, but it's super enjoyable. And if those two things seem to contradict each other, it's because oftentimes in life they do. But this record reminds me of how you behave on like the first few days of a, va of a vacation. You know, when it feels so good to just get away. And no matter how good his band is, sometimes it's just nice to get away. 
Songs like Lonely Town and Between You and Me are still in heavy rotation at the house. I bought the album on vinyl, wore it out. I listen to it. When I get to the end, I listen again. It was the right album for me at the right time. And that may go for Brandon Flowers as well. Through a microscope lens, dissecting your whole life, but they'll never get you wrong. I've been watching you all night. And the people passing by, they should tremble at your side. But they'll never. The last album on this list was the hottest release of the decade. The hottest release of the decade. Can you guess what it is? I'll give you a second. It's the Hamilton soundtrack. The original cast recording was officially released on September 25th, 2015. That's plenty. Scratch that. This is not a moment. It's the movement where all the hungriest brothers were something to prove. Went foes oppose us. We take an honest stand. We roll like Moses, claiming our promised land. And if we win our independence, that a guarantee of freedom for our descendants. Or will the blood we shed begin an endless cycle of vengeance and death with no defendants? I know the action in the street is exciting, but Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting, I've been reading and writing. We need to handle our financial situation. Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? A past patiently waiting, I'm passionately smashing every expectation, every action's an act of creation. I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow. For the first time, I'm thinking past tomorrow. And I am not for the way And I don't care if it's the soundtrack to a Broadway play. It's the single most visionary piece of recorded music of the decade. Rhymes steeped in American history. Tragedy, humor, sex, politics. It's a commentary on race, though it's never preachy. It blows up our notion of the founding fathers being these holier-than-thou supermen. And somehow, we're even more drawn to their stories. It's worth noting the depiction of our history as told by Lin-Manuel Miranda has never been disputed. History buffs applauded it. So did rap fans and rock fans and theater geeks. I mean, when, when was the last time all of those crowds gathered in the same place? And that's the beauty of Hamilton. It was a once-in-a-generation thing. Where we looked around and we said, whoa, that's possible? Damn right it's possible. The unvarnished and stylishly told American story by way of a true American original. It was the best music moment of the decade. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. 
Number one, the challenge demands satisfaction. If they apologize, no need for further action. Number two, if they don't grab a friend, that's your second. Your lieutenant, when there's reckoning to be reckoned. Number three, have your seconds meet face to face. Negotiate a peace or negotiate a time and place. This is commonplace, especially between recruits. Most disputes die and no one shoots. Number four, if they don't reach a peace, that's all right. Time to get some pistols and the doctor on site. You pay him in advance, you treat him with civility. You have him turn around so he can have deniability. Five, four before the sun is in the sky. Pick a place to die where it's high and dry. Number six, leave a note for your next to kin. Tell him where you've been. Pray that hell or heaven lets you in. Seven, confess your sins. Ready for the moment of adrenaline. When you finally face your opponent. Number eight, do you agree? Yes? No? What are your favorite releases? Do we have any in common? Any I should check out before we move on to the next 10 years? Hit me up. Sedlak Journal at gmail.com. S-E-D-L-A-K. All squished together at gmail.com. All right, friends, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man every month. We add five songs to the playlist, which you can find on Spotify. Go ahead and search Stream Police. Start enjoying it as soon as this episode wraps. A lot of good stuff in there, good variety. This time around, the first song we're going to add is Watermelon Sugar by Harry Styles. You know, rock can be fun, okay? It can be sexy. There was a lot of sex in rock when it started. This, but this roid rock stuff is like sexless. It just, it's boring. It drives me crazy. Let rock music be fun again. All right, second. It's Hit Somebody by Warren Zevon, featuring a cameo from Dave Letterman. There were sweeps to the left of him, Russians to the right. A check at the blue line looking for a fight. Brains over brown that might work for you. What's a Canadian farm boy to do? It's somebody. What else can a farm boy from Canada do? It's somebody. What's a Canadian farm boy to do? It's somebody. What else can a farm boy from Canada do? Third. Look, I love it, and I don't care what you think. It's My Maria by Brooks and Dunn. Then, Me and Paul by Willie Nelson. Well, it's been rough and rocky traveling, but I'm finally standing upright on the ground. And after taking several readings, I'm surprised to find my mind still fairly sound. 
Yes, Nashville was the roughest, but I know I've said the same about them all. We received our education in the cities of the nation, me and Paul. And finally, it's God Gave Rock and Roll to You by Kiss. That's it. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. We're going to throw things back to Clint. Be careful on New Year's. I made it. Be careful. But enjoy yourselves. Peace. I think Andy had a lot of fun putting that list together, going back. I know it was fun for me going like all the way back to 2010, 2011, 2012, remembering what I was into, what I thought was really good, how my tastes have changed even just over the last 10 years. Um, I think he had a lot of fun uh, going back there too and kind of the place that he was at in 2010, 2011, what he was listening to. I, I mean, I knew him back then. I had just really gotten to know him really well about 10 years ago. Um and uh, I think uh, I don't think his tastes have changed necessarily all that much, honestly. I think Andy is uh, a guy who has been pretty steady on what he enjoys. He's got such an eclectic taste, though, that he doesn't let himself get pigeonholed kind of in one genre. He's never been a one-genre guy in the whole time I've known him. But he still, man, he still loves rock music just about more than anyone that I've ever met in my life. I mean, rock music is kind of one of those genres that has... Uh, fallen out of favor in recent years and Andy's definitely really still carrying the torch so uh, anyway man good to hear your list I I hope you had fun putting that together I know he was excited when I suggested to him that uh, for this episode we kind of run down our favorite things of the last 10 years so hopefully had some hopefully had some fun doing that one and hopefully you had some fun listening to it once again I'm Clint Davis I do movies and tv here on the Stream Police Podcast. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. And uh, I'm on email at theclintdavis at gmail.com if you want to hit me up. All right. I gave you my 10 favorite TV shows. Let's roll right along and get into my 10 favorite movies of the 2010s. My The cinema masterpieces, the ones... Again, I'm not going to call these the 10 best movies of the 2010s. I didn't watch every movie that came out in the 2010s, so I don't know if I could tell you without question what the best movies of the 2010s were. But these were my favorite. I watched a shit ton of movies in this last decade. Um, and these were the ones that will I will carry with me as I go on into 
the next few decades. These are the ones from the 2010s I remember the most fondly. Let's start at number 10. It's a, a little gem that came out in 2017 that got tons of praise, tons of Oscar nominations, and made a good amount of money at the box office as well. It was Lady Bird, directed by Greta Gerwig. I love a good coming-of-age film, and Lady Bird, to me, is one of those that I would call one of the quintessential coming-of-age movies, especially coming-of-age movies have a tendency to get mired into just one kind of group. Group of young white boys. That's usually what it's about. White boys in the summer. What are they doing? And I've told you before on this show how the movie Now and Then is is one of my very favorite coming-of-age movies. Um... One of those movies I always go back to, it's about a group of young white girls growing up in the 1960s, and it's just interesting to see that perspective. But Lady Bird, it's about an older white girl who is you know, finishing her tenure at a Catholic high school, even though it doesn't seem like she has much business being there. Uh, totally a girl that marches to the beat of her own drum, calls herself Lady Bird, goes by that as her name, even though it's not her name. Uh, and that girl is played by the great Sir Sharonin, who I would call... Um, my favorite actor of the last 10 years. I think she singled herself out as my favorite movie star of the decade uh, because of the the roles that she chose to take, the um, way she's just been so locked in since she was even a child when she was in uh, Atonement, which was a really good movie as well. And it's such a sad fucking movie. And she's so good in that. Um, and in Hannah. But she was so good in this past decade. Uh and Lady Bird to me is like the kind of what like it was a real coming out party for Saoirse Ronan and also for Greta Gerwig, uh, and it was her directorial debut, uh, and she wrote the movie as well. And I think Greta Gerwig is going to be one of those people. I hope that sticks around for a long time as a real voice in cinema, especially for women. Um, but Lady Bird was just such a great movie. It had these moments that really, honestly, made me cry. One of the most touching moments in all of cinema in the 2010s came to me when Saoirse Ronan and uh, Beanie Feldstein, who played best friends in this movie, are sitting together in a car and they're they're both crying and they're listening to Dave Matthews because the the movie is set in the early 2000s. Uh, so there's some nostalgia there for people that are about my age and a little bit older than me, especially. Uh, and it was just such a touching, beautiful moment. But there's so many great performances in this movie. Laurie Metcalf is great. Tracy Letts, Lucas Hedges, Timothy Chalamet. Um, just a lot of great actors, a lot of uh, fantastic moments of dialogue, of exchanges between characters. And it's really about that age-old divide between generations, between parents and children, and uh, what causes the, them to bang heads when really they have the same goals in mind at the end of the day, which is you want, you know, parents want their kids to be successful and fulfilled, and kids want to be successful and fulfilled. Uh, but for some reason, uh, they always just disagree on the way that's going to happen. And Lady Bird's a classic example of that. So uh, it's just one of those movies I think is going to be timeless and a classic and go down as one of my absolute favorites of the last 10 years. So that's my number 10 pick, Lady Bird from 2017. Everything we do is for you. Everything. Do you think I like driving that car around? No. Do you? No. Do you think I like working double shifts at the psych hospital? No. You needed to go to the Catholic school because your brother saw somebody knifed in front of him at the public school. Is that what you want? Larry, what are you doing on the computer? Nothing. 
You think your dad and I don't know how ashamed that you are? Of us, your dad knows. Your dad knows why you ask him to drop you off a block away from school every day. Dad, I didn't mean to. You made him feel horrible. Horrible. I'm sorry. You know Miriam, that? you didn't have to bring no, that Larry, up. No, Larry, you can't just be the nice guy. She has to know. She has to know how you feel. Otherwise, she's just gonna think she can say anything at all and nobody ever gets hurt. Wrong side of the tracks. I didn't mean it that way. It was yeah. a joke. Yeah, it's just a joke. Mom and Dad, they don't care. We didn't think we'd be in this house for 25 years. We thought we would have moved someplace better. Whatever we give you, it's never enough. It's never it enough. It is enough. Do you have any idea what it costs to raise you and how much you're just throwing away every day? Give me a number. What? Give me a number. Number nine on my list comes from one of, you know, the all-time icons of cinema from the last 30 years, the great Quentin Tarantino. And uh, it's my most recent movie on the list. It is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think Quentin Tarantino has not been firing on this high of a level in a long time. I think it's his best work since the Kill Bill movies, but honestly, it's probably his best work, man, probably since Pulp Fiction. I, it, I re, it reminded me a lot of Jackie Brown, which is another one of his that I really, really love. But Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was maybe the most fun I had at the movies this entire decade, and I had a lot of fun at the movies in this last decade. But if you didn't see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I mean, it was this totally wild unleashed uh just <laughs> wild ride of a movie set in 1969 in los angeles so many great cars great costumes uh from that day and it tells a version of what happened when the manson family took control of la and seized uh, the city with fear and seized the nation with fear really in 1969 at the end of the hippie era uh and but really this movie is set in the back lots of Hollywood, and it's about a fading actor played by Leonardo DiCaprio and his loyal best friend slash stuntman played by uh, Brad Pitt, um, who, uh, just the two of them together are one of my favorite duos on screen that I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, Margot Robbie is fantastic in this as well. I'm not usually huge on her, but I thought she was really good as a uh, the late, great Sharon Tate. Uh, Emile Hirsch, really good. Margaret Qualley, again. I mentioned her before when I was talking about The Leftovers. She's very good in this movie. Timothy Oliphant's in it. Dakota Fanning, Bruce Dern, Al Pacino's in it. It's just got this great ensemble cast that really only Quentin Tarantino could have put together. And there's just so much. It's, it was just a fun fun watch and it's one of those epics that's you know clocks in at almost three hours but it feels like it just flies by in five seconds so once upon a time in hollywood couldn't recommend it more it was my favorite movie of this past year uh and it's uh to me is one of the best movies of the last decade and one of the best things quentin tarantino has ever done uh and will go down unquestionably as one of his masterpieces and he's had quite a few of them but this one you could just tell he had the time of his life this was like the movie he was born to write because he's such a nerd about movies. He he loves L.A. so much. He loves setting his movies in Los Angeles and in California in general and the business of movies. He's just such a nerd for that stuff that, uh, I mean, this was the movie I think he was born to write. And I think DiCaprio and Pitt just had the times of their lives making this film. And I had the time of my life watching it. I did, did not want it to end. I wanted it to go on for another three hours. 
if I'm being completely honest with you. So my ninth favorite movie of the 2010s uh, was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from 2019. Hey, you! Yeah, asshole! I'm talking to you! What the hell do you think you're doing bringing that noisy hunk of shit around here at midnight? This is a private road, all right? Who are you? And who are you here to see, huh? Nobody, sir. We just got lost and a little turned around. Oh, horse shit. Fucking hippies came up here to smoke dope on a dark road, huh? Next time you want to try that, fix your fucking muffler. Look, we're really sorry we disturbed you. Look, Chief, you don't belong here. Now take this mechanical asshole and get it off my fucking street! Hey! Dennis Hopper! Move this fucking piece of shit! Alright, well just give me a moment to turn it around. Well drive it backwards, dumb nuts, but fucking drive it and drive it now! Okay, okay, stop yelling. Hold your horses, we're leaving. The hell are you looking at, you little ginger-haired fucker? Number eight on my list of my favorite movies of the last decade is a smaller film uh, than the first two that I've mentioned here. More of an indie, uh, and it came out in 2011. It's a film called Take Shelter from writer-director Jeff Nichols, who to me is one of the great writer-directors to come out of the last 10 years. Every movie that Jeff Nichols did in the 2010s, I think, goes down as a, honestly a great movie. I, I've loved everything I've seen him do. He's one of my favorite voices in cinema, and Take Shelter was one of those that I think really put him on the map as a guy to watch in the business. If you didn't see Take Shelter, this was uh, an intense psychological drama that starred Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain. And how can you really beat you know those two? co-starring in a film together, especially back in 2011, right kind of at the start of both of them becoming powerhouses in the business. Uh, but it's about a guy played by Michael Shannon. He's a, he's you know still a pretty young man. He, he lives in like rural Ohio, and he just finds himself haunted by these visions of the apocalypse coming and decides to spend like all of his family's money and spend all of his time, quits his job building this uh, shelter, uh, you know, under the ground that he and his family can live in when this massive uh, storm is, is going to be on its way that he knows is coming at some point that he's seen in premonitions. Everyone, of course, thinks he's absolutely insane, including his wife at a certain point. He almost wrecks his entire family undertaking this thing. And this is the kind of story that can only, to me, be told in a movie and with an actor like Michael Shannon, who is so quietly intense in this film. Those are the kind of performances he does better than anybody. Uh, and Take Shelter is just a perfect, uh, perfect showing of what he is capable of doing as an actor and also what Jeff Nichols is capable of doing as a writer and director. It had a, a, a very divisive ending as well, which these kind of movies kind of need to have, I think, for them to be remembered fondly. But I love Take Shelter. It was one of my absolute favorite movies of the last 10 years, and that's why I've got it at number eight on my list of the best movies of the 2010s. Check out Take Shelter if uh, you get a chance to find it anywhere. It's one of those that can be hard to find, but I think you'll really enjoy it. It'll stick with you if you like these kind of psychological uh, guessing game kind of movies. I told people what you've been doing. I know. You cut me loose. 
Everything we've been through? I know. I'm sorry. Hey, hey. Ain't fucking sorry. Hey. All right. Ain't fucking sorry. You're sorry you wouldn't have cut me loose. We're fucking friends. That's how you treat friends. God damn it. Stop it, Dort! I said yes! All right, I'm going to throw a romantic movie at you for my seventh favorite movie of the 2010s. This was one that I raved about here on the show, and uh, people who know me have heard me rave about this movie nonstop. I've seen it, I think, like four times now. I show like everyone I know this movie because I just think everyone will love it, and I would show it to you too if, uh, if you came over to my house. It's Brooklyn from 2015. Once again, this one stars Saoirse Ronan in the lead role, and this was the movie that really showed to me what she is capable of as a leading woman, and this is just a beautiful, touching, fantastic romance and historical film uh, set in the 1950s uh, in New York. It follows Saoirse Ronan as this young woman who comes over from Ireland um, all on her own to Brooklyn, doesn't know anyone when she gets there, uh, is scared to death, and uh, but you know she's determined to make a life for herself there out of the small town in Ireland that she felt so stifled in uh, when she was living there. And uh, it, this, and along the way, she ends up meeting this, you know, young, nice guy who comes from an Italian immigrant family, uh, and they spark this, you know, really nice romance that uh, is unlikely as hell. Uh, but it's just beautiful to watch unfold. And this is beautiful is the best way to describe it. It's just a gorgeous movie, the way it looks. The acting is so gentle. Um, and it's just touching and fun and funny, uh, but also really gets into the experience of the immigrant uh, and why that is such a, a, a such an intense experience and why it's something that you can't you just can't imagine unless you see someone go through it or you go through it yourself and I think it'll open up to you even more empathy for immigrants if you check out this uh, this movie because it just again really drives home how tough it is to be away from home if you've never been that far away from your own home. Uh, Brooklyn blew me away uh, in 2015. I, I just raved about it nonstop and I've watched it like I said several times since then and it still holds up to me as one of my favorite movies, absolute favorite movies of the decade, one of my favorite romantic movies ever. One of the all-time ultimate date movies. Check it out if you uh, want to woo someone and show them how cultural and sensitive you are and also how great your taste in movies are. Pull out Brooklyn. You uh, you will not find someone who does not like this film. I'm, I'm serious. I don't care what genre you like. I think you'll find something to love about this movie. It's just a piece of serious classic filmmaking that is absolutely uh, beautiful. Again, it came out in 2015. It's my seventh favorite movie of the decade. It is Brooklyn. You remember that... After I had dinner at your house, you told me you loved me. Well, I didn't really know what to say. 
But I know what to say now. I have thought about you. And I like you. And I like being with you. And... Maybe... I feel the same way. So the next time you tell me you love me, if there is a next time, I'll say I love you too. Are you serious? Yes. All right, for number six on my favorite movies of the decade, I'm going to go a totally different direction. There is absolutely nothing romantic about this movie, which came out also in 2015. It is Sicario. Directed by the great Canadian auteur Denis Villeneuve and written by Taylor Sheridan, who again becomes one of those, I think, best, most original voices to come out of cinema in the last 10 years. I've been thrilled by everything I've seen that was written by Taylor Sheridan. He's just an exciting screenwriter, one of those guys I look forward to seeing even more from. And Denis Villeneuve proved himself to be one of the decade's great directors uh, with movies like Sicario. This movie is so intense and just simmering boiling from start to finish so dark and grim as uh, Brooklyn was about you know the plight of the immigrant and how tough it is um, Sicario is about a different kind of thing it's it's also about immigration but it's about illegal immigration in mod in the modern day and it's about uh, uh, immigration at the southern border obviously people coming from Mexico Mexico often fleeing awful dangerous situations uh, that they're put in by um, you know, towns that are run by cartels. And Sicario is so much about that. It's about an FBI agent played by Emily Blunt who finds herself joining this group of um, questionable uh, government agents who kind of work as freelancers, played by Josh Brolin and Benicio Del Toro, as they go into Mexico and try to take on uh, the leader of a, a Mexican drug cartel. And they do it in very questionable, unethical, illegal ways. And Emily Blunt is a very by-the-books FBI agent who has made her career by being that way. So it makes her very uncomfortable to be in this situation, but she's great at her job. So that's why they wanted her there. So there's all this internal tension in Sicario that's boiling the entire time. And the visuals are outstanding. The music is so powerhouse. This is one of those movies you got to watch in surround sound with the bass jacked all the way up um, because it's just intense. And the whole thing looks just gorgeous and ugly at the same time. And Sicario is one of my absolute favorite action movies ever. Um, and I would, I put it up there with movies like heat. It reminds me of that. It's that kind of thing where there's not a ton of action in it. The heat's one of my absolute favorite movies ever made. And heat is so great because there's not a ton of action in it over the course of three hours, but when the action happens, it is so intense and so, uh, just pulse pounding, uh, and so well done, beautifully directed, and, and intense in violence. Uh, and that's the way it is in Sicario. There are all these moments of quiet character development, but then when the action hits, dude, it's breathtaking. Uh, and you're sitting there trying to catch your breath. So can't recommend Sicario anymore. I also like the sequel a lot, but uh, the first one, you know, obviously I think is a little bit better. So I had to put it on my list. It's my sixth favorite movie of the 2010s, 2015's Sicario. Alejandro works for the fucking Colombian cartel. He works for the competition. 
Alejandro works for anyone who will point him toward the people who made him. Us. Them. Anyone who will turn him loose. So he can get the person that cut off his wife's head and threw his daughter into a vat of acid. The closest thing to Michael Mann's masterpiece, Heat, that I have seen anyone else pull off. And that is high praise for me, indeed. All right, number five, let's get into horror here. It's my only horror movie to make my list of my favorite movies of this last decade. To me, it is the ultimate horror movie of the 2010s and one of the best ever made. It's Hereditary. I've made it, I named it my favorite movie of 2018. If you remember listening to our special episode at the end of last year, when uh, actually I think it was early this year that I did that list of my favorite movies of 2018. And uh, Hereditary was number one. Uh, and there are plenty of reasons for it. This movie is so original, so unique, uh, so quietly building to what it's building. Um, it's got such a memorable, great ending. The way that it lays itself out is so much like just a family drama. And if you, I, I almost, I wish when I went into Hereditary, I didn't even know it was a horror because it, you wouldn't know it was a horror movie for the first hour. It just feels like a family drama with an awful tragedy thrown into the middle of it. Uh, and then from there, things get weird and you get that awful feeling in your stomach as it continues on. And you're like, oh, my God, this is this is this is horrifying. This is a horror movie. I get what's about to happen here. Uh, and the whole thing just feels uneasy and, and scary. And that's what makes Hereditary brilliant. It's the ultimate movie to give you nightmares from this last 10 years. Uh, and it's just in the slow way that it builds on you. It's got so much great acting in it, which is not common for horror. But uh, Tony Collette, the great Tony Collette, leads the way. Gabriel Byrne is fantastic in it as well. Once again, Ann Dowd pops up and gives a, a wonderful performance. But writer and director Ari Aster becomes the horror auteur of his generation with this movie. And then he followed it up with the equally terrifying and even more disturbing movie, Midsummer, uh, which came out this year. So Hereditary, to me, though, uh, is one of the masterpieces of the last 10 years and of the horror genre in general. I recommend it to anyone who has any interest in horror movies, but be beware, it is supremely disturbing as it uh, rolls on. Even though it doesn't feel like it's going to be, it is supremely disturbing once it gets to where it's, it's trying to go. And you can just feel it the whole time building to that place. This was brilliant filmmaking, intense stuff. Uh, it's my fifth favorite movie of the decade from 2018. It is Hereditary. You okay, Mom? something on your mind just seems like there might be something you want to say yeah like what i mean why would i want to say something so i could let you sneer at me sneer at you i don't ever sneer at you oh sweetie you don't have to you get your point across okay so fine then say what you want to say then Peter. i don't want to say anything i've tried Saying okay, things. so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean. 
Yeah, fine, release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? All right, let's go all the way back to 2010 for my fourth favorite movie of the decade. This was the uh, movie that kicked off the decade as a great decade of cinema, in my opinion. Uh, it's directed by one of the all-time masters, David Fincher. It is The Social Network. This movie just blew me away the first time I saw it, and every time I've watched it again since, it continues to blow me away with the way it tells its story, with the acting, with the score, which is maybe my favorite score uh, in modern cinema history. I, I just think that the score for The Social Network by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross is going to go down as one of the defining moments in movie music. off an entire wave of imitators in just this kind of synthesizer minimalist you know no strings nothing like that you know bass synthesizer and and keyboard and stuff like that as your entire movie uh and it, it just drives the entire thing and gives the whole thing life and a pulse the movie's gorgeous to look at as well it's just full of great performances and intensity this is one of david fincher's masterpieces and that puts it up there with some of the best movies ever. Uh, and I continue to love this movie. I think, you know, it should have been the best picture winner of the year that it came out. Uh, but damn it, I'm going to put it on my list. It's my fourth favorite movie of the 2010s, The Social Network, the movie about Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg as the main character, played by Jesse Eisenberg. Um, who knew that this was going to be a great movie? Who thought the Facebook movie was going to be one of the all-time uh, greats of the decade, but it certainly was. I still love this movie. I still go back to it. Um, it's one of the all-time greats about business and how cutthroat the whole thing can be and about the tech sector. There were so many shows and movies and things about the tech sector after The Social Network, uh, but this was really kind of the first one of the decade to do that, and it was done with such uh, seriousness and, and maturity and, and just done by a master artist in David Fincher. David Fincher. So, uh, that's my pick for the fourth, uh, my fourth favorite movie, I should say, of the 2010s, The Social Network from 2010. I'm not a bad guy. I know that. When there's emotional testimony, I assume 85% of it is exaggeration. And the other 15? Perjury. Creation myths need a devil. What happens now? Sai and the others are having a stake on University Avenue. Then I'll come back up to the office and start working on a settlement agreement to present to you. They're going to settle? Oh, yeah. And you're going to have to pay a little extra. Why? So that these guys sign a non-disclosure agreement. They say one unflattering word about you in public, you own their wife and kids. I invented Facebook. I'm talking about a jury. I specialize in voir dire. Jury selection? What a jury sees when they look at a defendant. Clothes, hair, speaking style, likability. Likability. I've been licensed to practice law for all of 20 months, and I could get a jury to believe that you planted the story about Eduardo and the chicken. Watch what else. Why weren't you at Sean's sorority party that night? You think I'm the one that called the police? Doesn't matter. I asked the question, now everybody's thinking about it. You've lost your jury in the first 10 minutes. Farm animals. Yeah. 
All right, for my third favorite movie of the decade, I'm going to go back to 2011. And when I was telling you about the Americans, I told you I love spy stories. You know, I mean, spy stuff is uh, some one of my favorite genres. I've always loved the James Bond movies. But when spy movies and stories are done really seriously by serious filmmakers, serious actors, and not with all the over-the-top gadgets and all that dumb shit that kind of ended up bogging down Bond in the end. Um, they can be so fun to watch, and it doesn't get a whole lot more serious in spycraft on film than 2011's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This movie knocked me on my ass the first time I saw it, and I have continued to watch it just about every year since it came out, and every time I watch it, I fall more in love with it. The cast is a dream. Gary Oldman, right at the top, maybe the best actor of his generation, maybe the best movie actor of all time, honestly, if you're asking me. Colin Firth, Tom Hardy, John Hurt, Toby Jones, Mark Strong, Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, how can you, you cannot go wrong with any of these actors. Um, And you've got uh, Thomas Alfredson directing it, who had done one of the great horror movies um, of recent memory with Let the Right One In. And then he comes out with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and shows that he can almost, you know, do whatever he wants to. Uh, his follow-up movie, The Snowman, ended up being a letdown. But Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy holds up as an absolute masterpiece. This, this movie is so tense. The story is so layered. Um, it's a John le Carré novel, so you know it's going to have a, lots of, a lot of twists and turns. And they did them all. I've seen the mini, the classic miniseries with Alec Guinness um, playing the lead role. I've watched it, and I really like it a lot. I think it's really well done. It's 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 probably the definitive version of the book because, it, I mean, in a miniseries, you don't have to leave things out. But this movie does so much with so much less time uh, that I think it's a real achievement, and I think it's uh, just a beautifully done uh, and such an intense movie that keeps you guessing all the way till the end. I, I love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I rewatch it all the time, uh, and I recommend you spend some time with it if you haven't checked it out just yet. It came out in 2011. It's my third favorite movie of the decade. It is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. There's a rotten apple, Jim. And we have to find it. I know that it is one of five men. All I want from you is one code name. Alaline. Tinker. Aiden. Taylor. Bland. Soldier. Oh, we drop sailor, it's too close to Taylor. And rich man doesn't seem to be applicable. Esther House. Poor man. On the fifth. Smiley. For my second favorite movie of the 2010s, I'm going to throw at you my only documentary on the list. And if you want my honest opinion, I think it's easily in the running for the best documentaries ever made. When I think about when I think about documentaries that are feature length, like two hours or less, three hours or less, something like that. 
So I'm not including the big epics like Showa um, or some of the documentary series. I'm talking about feature-length documentaries. This movie always comes in my mind as maybe the best I've ever seen. I'm going to be completely honest with you when I say that. It came out in 2012. It's a movie called The Act of Killing. Talk about a movie that that left me breathless when I watched it. I will never forget sitting down to watch this movie for the first time. It was directed by Joshua Oppenheimer, who becomes one of the great documentary filmmakers um, of his generation when he releases this movie. And he's since followed that up uh, with even, even more great films. Uh, but this movie uh, is just, it's hard to sum up to you if you've never seen it before. What the film is about is it sees Joshua Oppenheimer going into Indonesia. And in the 1960s, 1965 to 1966, the Indonesian military murdered, I mean, mass murdered thousands of its own citizens. And when I say thousands, I'm talking about like hundreds of thousands, like half a million people is what, you know, I've read as a conservative estimate, the Indonesian government and the Indonesian military murdered during 1965 and 1966. So what this movie is about is not, a, it's not about those killings. It's not a history of those killings. What it's about is Oppenheimer goes into Indonesia in modern day, in the 2010s, he gets close to the Indonesian military members who were parts of those groups who were in the killing squads. And he tells them that he's going to make a movie dramatizing their stories of doing these killings. So he wants to hear in their, you know, in their great detail the way they did these killings. Because these guys in their minds are heroes. They're treated by their government as heroes, even though they were just murderers. They simply murdered innocent people, children, old people, women, men, anyone. They they just murdered people, screaming innocent people. But in their minds, these guys are heroes. So it's this whole warped thing. So he tells them he's going to make a movie. He's going to dramatize those killings like as action movie scenes and make them into even better heroes. And he's got them participating as actors in it. So that's why this thing is called the act of killing. And what happens is these guys don't realize quite what's happening. They don't realize the psychology of everything that's coming up until it gets into the thick of while they're filming these dramatizations of the scenes. And you see these floods of emotions, of, of regrets, of fear, of this all coming out, of fear that they they were in the wrong the whole time, of what they've been told by their government was a lie the entire time, that they're actually villains, and they're realizing this on camera, as Oppenheimer has his camera in their face, and as he's treating them like heroes, even though they're, you know, villains the whole way through, they're so, it, this movie is so deep and intricate and intense that it is very hard to sum up, uh, and it's really just... Uh, it's hard to even talk. I mean, it's, it makes me emotional thinking about this movie, uh, as I'm talking about it. So I just recommend you watch it. If you're into documentaries, the act of killing is the documentary of the 2010s. And this was a great decade for documentaries, maybe the best decade ever, uh, for the art form of documentaries. Um, but I think the act of killing is the crowning achievement of that genre for the last 10 years. And it honestly, it made a play for my number one favorite movie of the last 10 years. But I think it might even just be a little too grim and tough to watch for it to be my all time favorite of the last 10 years, but it made a hell of a play, but I put it at number two, my second favorite movie of the decade easily could have been number one from 2012. 
Uh, it is the act of killing. Find it wherever you can and give this thing a watch. Not easy, but oh my God, there there's nothing there's nothing like this movie. It's a it's a seminal achievement in, cin- in uh, cinema history. <laughs> finally my number one favorite movie of the last decade i gotta say this is one where the oscars finally got it right i only had one best picture winner on my list of my favorite movies of the last 10 years well unless once upon a time in hollywood wins i don't i don't know it it could i think it has a good chance to but one for sure best picture winner of the last 10 years and that is 2016's moonlight my favorite movie of the last decade. No movie stuck with me um, and showed me artistry and and great acting and a story that I hadn't seen told on on film before with characters that I had not seen done this way before uh, with music and uh, cinematography that will stick with me for the rest of my life uh, quite like Moonlight another coming-of-age drama and this movie uh, the way that it works if you've never seen it it's it's about one one man and it tells the story of him growing up into a man in three different stages. So there's three different sections of the movie. There's a part when he's a kid, there's a part when he's a teenager, and there's a part when he's a young man. Uh, and all three have pivotal moments that kind of show how he becomes the person he does, um, despite of things that have happened to him in his life and because of things that have happened to him in his life, including connections he's made with people that may have been fleeting Uh, but end up leaving a lasting impression on him. This movie is just beautiful. It's the best way to describe it. Uh, Also, tough to watch, very sad at parts, but full of life and beauty. Um, And the main character, Chiron, ends up being one of my favorite movie characters in history. And writer and director Barry Jenkins ends up being one of the great voices of cinema for the last decade easily. And I hope he's going to continue to be one for the next 10 years uh, and beyond as well. I just was blown away by Moonlight. I thought immediately when Beth and I saw it, I can still remember going to see it in the theater in 2016, that that was the best movie of the year, unquestionably. There's no way anything can beat that. Um, And it ended up being, when I was thinking about it, looking back at all the great movies from this last 10 years, it to me had to be the number one best movie of the decade. It just summed up kind of where we've gone in Hollywood, uh, where Hollywood has gone, I should say. I'm not part of Hollywood, but where Hollywood has gone and the types of stories that are going to hopefully be told more in the next 10 years and those being stories about minorities and um, about more gay people and uh, people who aren't binary in the way they describe their sexuality and the way they describe Uh, their gender and things like that. And Moonlight brings in a lot of these identity issues into one beautifully told story that is so well acted from top to bottom with mostly unknown actors, uh, including Mahershala Ali, who comes out as one of the, you know, uh, most serious actors of the day. And uh, he's won two Oscars already. He won his first one for his work in Moonlight, which is a beautiful short performance in this movie as one of the um, uh, great mentors of Chiron's life in the early part 
of his life. I, Moonlight's just beautiful. The music in it is some of my favorite music ever uh, to be seen in cinema. And I think Barry Jenkins' voice just came through so perfectly, so clearly. And he should really be proud of this movie. He told a, a wonderful story here that will last forever and will go down as one of the great movies of all time. Certainly one of the great best picture winners ever. It was my favorite movie of the 2010s from 2016, Moonlight. What's a faggot? Faggot is a word used to make gay people feel bad. Am I a faggot? No. No. You could be gay, but you gotta let nobody call you no faggot. I mean, unless. How do I know? Just do. I think. You know what you know. Hey. You gotta know right now. So those are my top 10 movies of the 2010s. What'd you think? Number 10, Lady Bird. Number 9, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number 8, Take Shelter. Number 7, Brooklyn. Number six, Sicario. Number five, Hereditary. Number four, The Social Network. Number three, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Number two, The Act of Killing. And number one, Moonlight. I think I got a good uh, mix of genres, mix of styles, mix of emotions you'll feel from watching these movies. But one thing's for sure, all of them are worth your time from the last decade. Those are the ones that will stick with me for years to come. Uh, no movies from 2013 or 2014. I thought that was interesting when I put my list together. But that those were the two years where I had more TV shows on my top 10 list of the 2010s than any other years. So, I don't know, maybe 2013 and 2014 were great TV years, not such great movie years. I don't know, Maybe that was, maybe that was the case. All right, before I let you go, I wanted to uh, do a couple things I always do here at the end of the show, including telling you uh, the best thing that I watched this month. So in the last month, I watched some really great movies. I got to tell you, there were several that I'd give perfect five-star grades to, which is totally rare for me. If you remember going back to the overdue review days, I think I gave uh, about seven movies total a five-star review in the course of like four years. But anyway, two that I want to point out, I usually only give you one here of the best I watched this month, but I got to give you two because they were both so good I couldn't leave either of them out. First off, it's Cache from 2005. That is one of the best thrillers I've ever seen. Um with a deep political message it, it ends up telling the story it was a french movie tells the story of this french couple um who ha are having videotapes dropped off at their front door that show their front door basically someone's been filming them from far away just for hours on end just leaving a camera running and filming them coming and going from their house it's kind of ominous it feels oddly threatening even though there's nothing really threatening in it so the police won't do anything um and the whole film this family's trying to figure out who's filming them uh what they're trying to do and all kinds of hidden secrets end up coming out uh as the movie goes on i just was blown away by that one it was uh, uh incredible intense unforgettable cachet from 2005 give it a watch 
if you're looking for a good foreign film to check out. And from 1984, speaking of great documentaries, The Times of Harvey Milk. Uh, This won the Oscar in 1985 for Best Documentary Feature, and man, it holds up. Let me tell you, if you're interested in politics at all, if you're interested in human rights at all, if you're interested in some of the great heroes of politics from our time, um, check out this movie about Harvey Milk, the first openly gay uh, man or person of any gender to uh, serve in elected office uh, at uh, the city level in San Francisco in the 1980s uh, or in the 1970s, I should say. And uh, the Times of Harvey Milk was just it blew me away. I, I had always heard good things about this movie, but man, it really blew me away with how good it was. Harvey Firestein does the narration. Can't beat him as far as a great voice goes. Uh, I would do my impression, but I think it would rip my throat apart at this point after I've been talking so long already. Uh, But uh, The Times of Harvey Milk was great. I I didn't know this story that well. I never watched the Sean Penn movie Milk, so I didn't know that much about the story. I knew what happened to Harvey Milk, but I didn't know all the intricacies of it. Man, such a sad story and uh, one of those documentaries I think every American should watch, especially if you're into politics at all. Give it a watch. The Times of Harvey Milk from 1984. I'm sure you can find it out there somewhere. All right, movies now streaming that I recommend you check out. I always give you something funny and something serious on Netflix and Amazon. Today is no different. On Netflix, something funny for you from 1997. It's Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. If you haven't seen it, what were you waiting on, man? It's the most 90s movie ever, even though Uh, It's also one of the most 60s movies ever because it's got such an affinity for those 60s James Bond movies and all the camp that goes along with them. Uh, And this was this is Mike Myers uh, magnum opus. Uh, He's had a lot of shitty movies over his career, but Austin Powers International Man of Mystery is still funny, uh, still ridiculous, still pretty sharp as well. Um, And it's just a classic take on James Bond and sexism and uh, you know, all the old tropes of the old spy movies back in the day. So give it a, give it a watch, especially if you want the nineties time capsule. It's on Netflix. Now it's one of those great background movies, but you won't be able to focus on anything else. Cause the jokes come flying at you a million miles per hour. Something serious for you on Netflix from 2012. This was a documentary I watched just recently and really loved searching for sugar man. Um, this was a, an Oscar winning documentary, Again, from 2012, that was about the mysterious singer-songwriter named Rodriguez, who was described as kind of being like Detroit's version of Bob Dylan in the 1960s. And uh, this movie gets into the myths about his death and whether or not he really did die. What happened to Rodriguez? What? How did he just disappear suddenly after becoming famous? He fell off the face of the earth. And the people who have been fans of him have been carrying the torch for him Uh, for decades, never forgot about his music, and uh, I had never heard Rodriguez's music, and I consider myself someone who's brushed up and knows a lot about about music history, Uh, and I was blown away by the songs in this movie that I had never heard and that had been around since the 60s, so I loved it. I I fell in love with Searching for Sugar Man. It's uh, it goes in different ways than you would expect this kind of movie to go. I'll just leave it at that. So uh, check it out. Searching for Sugar Man on Netflix right now. And on Amazon, something funny for you, 1996's Kingpin from the Fairley Brothers. Is it as funny as Dumb and Dumber? I don't know. Dumb and Dumber's tough to beat, but this is like an R-rated uh, movie from the Fairley Brothers that uh, was, I mean, it's really funny, and it's really gross, and... 
it kind of you know it's sad as well, but it's just a funny ass movie. Woody Harrelson is is fantastic as this really down on his luck bowler who lost his hand. So he's walking around with a rubber hand after a gambling incident uh, when he tried to hustle some money off some guys. Um, and it's just about his life as a loser and trying to claw his way back, uh, literally claw his way back to the top of uh, professional bowling when he takes on this young Amish guy as his uh, as his protege. Uh, and the young Amish guy is played by Randy Quaid. Uh, but Bill Murray steals the entire movie. He plays the villain, uh, and he's a total asshole. It's no question Bill Murray's least likable role, but one of his absolute funniest roles, one of his greatest performances, um, and he steals the entire film in just a couple scenes. Uh, so Kingpin is worth watching just even for that if you've never seen it. It's from 1996, and it's on Amazon right now. Uh, and something serious for you from 1964, Sidney Lumet's The Pawn Broker. My God, what a searing and depressing drama with shades of the Holocaust thrown into it. But it's not a Holocaust movie. It's just kind of about the the, the never-ending pain of someone who survived it uh, and goes on to have their own life in New York City uh, but never forgets the scars of what happened to them and what they lost and who they lost. And Rod Steiger gives the performance of his lifetime uh, in this movie. Uh, it's just uh, one of the, this is one of those films that's hard to find. I spent a long time looking for The Pawnbroker. It was hard to find. Uh, I finally tracked it down on DVD and watched it a few years ago, and I was uh, blown away by how ahead of its time it was for 1964. This is a serious, hard, R-rated, tough, tough character study drama Again, from 1964, a time that was really full of a lot of frivolous filmmaking. Sidney Lumet was making some serious shit that I think uh, inspired a lot of people in the 1970s to do the kind of movies they did. Uh, so check it out. It's on Amazon Prime Video right now for you. The Pawnbroker from 1964. Rod Steiger and Sidney Lumet. Doesn't get much more serious than that. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thank you, my friend. Uh, thanks for spending part of this decade with us, and uh, thank you for spending a part of your day with us here listening to the program. Tell your friends about it and uh, rate it. Please give us a good rating and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. We definitely appreciate it. We don't make any money from the show. We just do it because we love it, and hopefully you love it as well. Check me out uh, on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis, and email me anytime at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. You can also hit Andy at sedlacjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, journal at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you very much, my friend. We'll talk to you in the next decade here on the Stream Police Podcast. Until then, stream on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.